Guess what, ghouls and goblins? The Spook Boys have officially joined Patreon. That's right, baby. The show as you know it will remain the same, ad-free, but our patrons will have exclusive access to bonus content. Interviews, franchise deep dives, even horror television. Wait, did you say television? You heard right, Sally. Becoming a patron means you're not only helping us keep the show running, but that it also remains available on all platforms, and again, ad-free. For more details, head on over to patreon.com, where you can become an official member of the Spoop Troop today. Alright, let's get going. I'm here, obviously. Uh, Whitney is on. Derek? Where? Oh, there you are. Wait, why are you at a pool? Why are you live streaming at a pool? What are you doing? I'm a sea pig. Okay, (laughs) dogs are going nuts. Like, don't you see there's like dead bodies in the pool? What is this? What are you doing? I'm a sea pig? All right, sure. <laughs> Whatever. All right. Yeah. Welcome to this very professional <laughs> podcast, uh, Watch Movie Day or Horror Movie Podcast, hosted by me, the Craven, Derek, and my movie Monster Boy co-host, Aaron, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, and discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies like myself and horror junkies like Aaron and I suspect Whitney alike. This week, you know, Halloween's over, but we keep the spooks going on. Well, for in our case, spoops, because we just wrapped up our season of spoops. Yeah. Uh, we keep it going all year long. Now, granted, for Halloween, we did three pretty big movies, and we're diving into a lesser known, possibly underrated, overlooked mm-hmm. slasher movie. This is a special episode because we have a brand new guest. Continuing our tradition where a lot of our guests come on and are way more accomplished than we are and have better <laughs> shows than our show, and they're willing <laughs> to come on and chill with us, which is great. We welcome Whitney, who is one half of the True Crime <laughs> Campfire podcast. Welcome to the show, Whitney. Thank Hi, you for thank you. coming on. Thanks for having Yay. me. I'm excited. I love talking about spooky movies. Hell yeah. Yeah, and so you you are well-versed in the world of horror, albeit from more of a true crime angle. Yeah, I watch a lot of it. I wouldn't say I'm a scholar in any way, but I, you know, I know what I like. Hey, that's the best <laughs> you can look for. But True Crime Campfire, for our listeners, host Katie and Whitney talk about different true crime cases you do it in a very storytelling way almost and i don't want to say a audiobook way but a very matter of the fact the way you build each case it flows like a story yeah Yeah. what i appreciate is you guys still keep it loose enough where you kind of add your own comments but you're not quite going into the full like edutainment we're seeing with a lot of true crime and and just podcasts in general you do kind of keep it serious enough You'll kind of try and take the piss out of the killers anytime you you cover killers, which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. But the thing I appreciate the most is of the handful of episodes I binged the last month or so, I only knew one case, and I think I like listened <laughs> through like six or seven cases. And the case I knew was fucking D.B. Cooper that you did two cases in one. Yeah, that was one of our grab bags. Yeah. I thought I knew everything about D.B. Cooper. Y'all still had stuff about that case that I hadn't heard about. Really? That's good to hear. Yeah. I didn't know about the part they added to Planes because of him. Oh, yeah. For some reason, I'd never heard about that. That's right. Yeah. I've watched a D.B. Cooper documentary. I've listened to a couple other podcasts cover him. Y'all are the first ones to bring that up. And 
right before we hopped on recording, peek behind the curtain, listeners. I was taking a shower and I was listening through your uh, Twisted Campfire, your mm-hmm. TCC Halloween special. Oh, that was a fun one. The first case you'll cover, again, not a case I knew about, is called The Watcher. And one yeah. of the main victims in that is a guy named Derek. And I've only like started that. I got about 10, 15 minutes into it from the first letter. Oh, so, uh, it's a creepy story. It fucking was... nightmare fuel. Yeah, yeah it's it wild. It absolutely yeah. is. Creepy as hell. Great for a Halloween episode. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yes, please. Listeners, if you want really good uh, true crime podcast, true crime campfire is amazing. You and Katie do a great job. But uh, is there anything else you want to fill in our audience about yourself or the podcast, how y'all started? Yeah, well, I like that you brought up that we have kind of a storytelling angle because I don't think that too, too many podcasts do it that way where you do kind of feel like you're reading a well-written true crime book, you know. But then we do, like you say, we sprinkle in. We're real hard on you know the dipshits who commit these crimes because there's so much weird i don't know what you would call it well i don't want to say glorification but there's this tendency to make murderers seem kind of sexy and like they're all dr moriarty or they're all dr hannibal lecter yeah. most of them are just dumbasses they're dipshits selfish yeah. dipshits you know and so yeah we kind of aim to de-glamorize a little bit and <laughs> just present the reality the word I like that y'all have mentioned so many times is dweeblet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think that will be part Not of my lexicon going forward. <laughs> but yeah, that's something that I also appreciate about your show because, like you said, we tend to like turn a lot of these people into... Boogeymen. Yeah, boogeymen. These yeah. capital V villains. And the reality is they're usually just sad, angry, yeah. emotionally stunted, shitty people who can't deal with their own issues. And so yeah. they you know lash out in a variety of ways Mm -hmm. the other thing i appreciate about your show too is so many of them you start and uh, it may start off fairly normal and then so many of those cases just become like what the fuck (laughs) is this by the end like you could never guess where they're going yeah we look for those we look for those yeah your part one and two on bj and erica sifrit yeah i think that came out End of August, early September. Jesus Christ, those two. Holy shit. Walker's case. Oh my God. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. we look for the ones that, like, I think it's in our description or in our intro that we look for the cases that are stranger than fiction and they're out there. You got to dig for them. Mm -hmm. So many shows do just the same cases over and over and over. And when we set out to do our show, we wanted to be the true crime podcast that you want to see in the world, you know, kind of thing. We wanted one we'd want to listen to. And so we wanted to yeah. kind of really deep dive and find cases that people hadn't heard of before. And the weird ones, the ones that make you go, what the hell? That's what <laughs> we were going for. <laughs> again, I'm only 10 minutes into your Watcher case. It's a true crime case, again, I never heard of from 2014. Yeah. It so far feels like a horror movie. It feels it like you're totally describing does. the plot of a horror movie. It is. Oh, just wait till you get deeper into it, Derek, because it's it's another one of those like, this is yeah. not going where you think it's going. Absolutely. It's yeah. bonkers. And we've got another one coming this week. I'm working on one that'll just make you scratch your head. I was listening to that Halloween episode while I was walking the dogs the other night, and Something that y'all were joking about for a couple of minutes that cracked me up because it really made me have some reflection and evaluation of my own life and situation. My wife always jokes about how I am totally a psychopath serial killer because I just drink milk. (laughs) I like milk. I I drink milk and a bunch of different things, right? (laughs) 
Katie that said that one. <laughs> yeah, my wife is yelling for the other room. It's gross. <laughs> we we even made fun of that on our show. We made oh, fun really? of that with fucking the killer from um Silent Night, Deadly Night. I just have my mail oh, before yeah. he goes yeah. crazy and kills everyone. Yeah. yeah, I think Golden State Killer actually drank milk out of somebody's fridge. It seems to be an uncomfortably common thing. But what cracked me up was y'all were discussing going over to somebody's house and like all they had was Dr. Dr. Pepper. Pepper. <laughs> and just like who what psychopath like only has Dr. Pepper like me. You need some entry level sodas and I was thinking I'm the psychopath. Okay, my wife who's addicted to diet Dr. Pepper and that's all she drinks and then the only thing I drink is bold ginger ale. <laughs> Holy shit. That's interesting. So anybody that comes over to our house is like, here are your two options. Uh, it's this it's or water. Drug. Let's just yeah. be honest about it. Or Dr. milk. Pepper's yeah, exactly. It must be because my wife went from like zero to 90 on Diet Dr. Pepper. If Dr. Pepper ever makes their like version of a zero, oh. like Coke Zero, where it's not Diet Dr. Pepper, um, it's game over for Lord. me because yeah. Dr. Pepper is my favorite soda, but yeah. I, I can only have it in small small birds because yeah. of the like syrupy it's intense but i loved y'all's entry-level sodas that yeah. is gonna stick in my head going <laughs> that forward so that funny. you know i loved how katie's like it's my favorite soda but like come on you can't just have just it have that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you get that top tier content too on true crime campfire you don't want to miss that shit yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's generally entertaining and like you do it at the right times it's not and don't get me wrong i do like some edutainment shows for oh, sure. sure but yeah. it feels like with your show it's not putting on a performance no, okay, we here's the part where just, we pause yeah. and you just kind of sprinkle it in as like natural conversation which i appreciate it's a nice breakup of the professional flow that's kind of what it's for is these stories are so dark sometimes you need a little bit of a breather yeah. and and when we started we actually didn't intend to do any of that we were just going to be kind of straight not make jokes and then we just quickly realized that there is no way in hell that katie and i can get together and not <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Crack jokes. Like, it's just not possible. But we never do it at the expense of the victims, obviously, and we never make light of the tragedy. It's always directed at the people who deserve it. So we're careful about yeah. that. Yeah. For sure. We kind of sometimes make fun of the victims on this show, but that's because no, we're all they're fictional. fictional. So who gives a shit, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we make fun of the victims that are dipshits. Again, the born victims. Not the ones that are genuine victims. We, we make fun of the people that wander out into, you know, yeah. dark places where somebody just was dead before them. Although I will say we are most critical of Franklin, and he wasn't necessarily a dipshit victim in Texas Chainsaw. Yeah, true. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, let's jump into our recommendations section. Obviously, we record all these ahead of time, so even though this is our early November episode, guess what? It's still Halloween. It's matter of fact, it is the 29th, so we are about to be on the day, baby. Bruh, I ate two pieces of Milk Duds from my daughter's candy because there was already a halloween party of so course. she got some candy That's last night. Tax, yeah yeah i ate some milk duds and it feels like there's a rock in my stomach now <laughs> I, I like milk duds. milk duds hell yeah well uh yeah let's start with you whitney what horror related movies tv shows books whatever tickles your fancy what would you like to talk about yeah okay so i'll talk about a tv show first and then i have a great book to recommend i have been into this old late 70s, early 80s British show lately that there's a whole bunch of them on YouTube. Prime has some of the seasons on there. It's called Tales of the Unexpected. They're eerie, bizarre, terrifying, and always unexpected. Tales of the Unexpected. I guarantee you there's going to be fans out there who are going to be like, oh, I love that show. 
they took a lot of stories from the famous authors at the time. Like, what was her name? Highsmith, who wrote The Talented Mr. Ripley. Roald Dahl had a couple of stories on there. Yeah. And okay. they would dramatize them. They're kind of Twilight zone kind of like if you ever watch the old Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Spooky, not gory. Okay, it's not yeah. straight horror. It's more creepy, psychological horror. Yeah, but a gotcha. lot of them have, you know, crazy Shyamalan twists that you don't see coming. And they're just so well done. And there were like a whole bunch of seasons of them. And you can just find dozens and dozens of episodes. My favorite one is probably the episode called Scrimshaw. I can't tell you what it's about because I would never dare to spoil it for you. But if you can find that episode of Tales of the Unexpected called Scrimshaw, you got to. It's so good. It gives me chills just thinking about it. It's so creepy. Based on the title alone, it makes me think it's about a cursed carved whale's tooth or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> that, doesn't it? Definitely. It's very creepy. It's good stuff. I was looking at it. So it aired for nine seasons, which is yeah, yeah, season, there's which tons is of quite them. a lot. And there's a list of people who appeared on it, and it's a pretty crazy list of older stars. Mm-hmm. Brad Dorif, Chucky himself, was on apparently. Yes, on a, absolutely. Uh, he is in, in at least one, I think. And oh, everybody. It's kind of one of those shows like Law and Order and Star Trek where everybody's yeah. been on Everybody's shows, been on you know? it. Whenever some you're point. like, where do I know that actor from? Nine times out of ten, it's going to be freaking Law and Order or Star Trek. You know, it's one of those shows. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a lot of that guy, that girl mm-hmm. actors yeah. on this. Like a lot of people that I don't necessarily notice the names but when I like go over the name and see their picture. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, them. Yeah, Brad Dorff's one of my favorite horror actors of all time. So check it out. It is nice. so good. And oh, it's yeah. got that great old late 70s, early 80s aesthetic, which I just can't get enough of. I eat that up. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a book as well called Night Film. And I'm probably going to butcher this poor woman's name by Marisha Pessel. I think it's P-E-S-S-L. I'll just read you the back of it. Ashley Cordova, the mysterious gifted daughter of the reclusive film director Stanislas Cordova, is found dead in an abandoned warehouse in lower Manhattan. Her death is ruled a suicide, but veteran investigative journalist Scott McGrath suspects otherwise. What happened to Ashley? As McGrath tries to uncover the truth, he is drawn into a spellbinding quest in the underworld of the Cordova family's life. With breakneck pace and dazzling inventiveness, Night Film will hold you in suspense until you turn the final page, which is fact. I was obsessed with this book, and I actually listened to the audio version. And it was interesting because my husband was reading the print version as I was listening to it. Two very different experiences, I think. But absolutely one of those books that you will stay up all night to finish reading. And it goes nowhere you're expecting it to go, which I love. Because I always think I can guess the twists and turns and where everything's headed. And and no, not with this one you can't. It's really, really good. That I think will probably be next on my list because I don't have anything lined up to read next. So So I think I'll probably check this out. It sounds like the premise of a Giallo movie, actually. Yeah, it does. I love that film director's name. I know, isn't it perfect? Cordova. That's so good for like a cult horror film. Cordova. Cordova. And they really go into, I mean, the author does such a good job of building the mythos around this guy and describing the movies that Cordova made. They sound like real movies you know sometimes when authors make up movies and describe them they just you can tell like it's just made up and it doesn't sound like a real movie but these you can absolutely believe that this cordova would have a rabid cult following 
Yeah. The movies were banned everywhere and they were too disturbing and people started watching them in subway tunnels, you know, underground. Hell yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. That kind of movie, you know, where people would trade the VHS tapes illicitly. That's one of those tropes from a lot of stories that I really like where there's mm-hmm. a cursed film or a lost totally. book. Yeah. And whoever checked it out went crazy and killed somebody afterward. Right. And who knows where it is now? And we don't know who the original author was or whatever. Mm-hmm. That trope I love and yeah. pretty much anything. It's a great thing to build a mystery around. So you yeah, no, this sounds book. right up my alley. I'm yeah, going to check that terrific. out for sure. Does it take place during the modern day or is it yeah. in a different era? Yeah, it's, it's modern, modern day. day. Yeah. But there's a lot of flashbacks to 70s, 80s time period as well. Yeah. Okay. Cordova was really coming to fame that's cool it's one of those things where i love this in movies and in books where it's almost like a hologram where if you turn it one way it's paranormal stuff is going on and if you turn it another way it's not interesting it's some kind of weird trick being played or maybe mental illness or you just don't know keeps you guessing i love that hell yeah cool well uh derek what have you got cool so the first recommendation is actually a person his name is lopaka kapanui he is okay. a Hawaiian storyteller steeped in ghost stories and Ooh. supernatural stories around Hawaii. He's actually now a professional lore master, basically, in Hawaii. I, I don't know if there's a proper term for it. I'm sure there is. He was even recognized by the Hawaii Senate, I believe. Either the Hawaii Senate or House recognized him recently as a master storyteller. Interesting. He is a native Hawaiian. His family, through the generations, have been storytellers that pass it through oral tradition. He's kind of always been a presence on YouTube for a few years now, even prior to COVID. But COVID really caused him to like start sharing a lot of these stories on YouTube. And so his his YouTube channel, like he has like 15,000 subscribers. He does a good following, but he has followers from all around the world. On top of his YouTube, he also runs a ghost tour company. And it's the only ghost tour company run by a native Hawaiian. Nice. And recently on USA Today, USA Today back in actually September 29th of this year, put out 10 best ghost tours in the U.S. And it was number one. His ghost tour company is number one here in Oahu, Hawaii. It's on the island with Honolulu and everything. The name of the ghost tour company is called Mysteries of Hawaii. Beyond the cool waters and trade winds of our idealistic paradise is the thin veil that separates our world from the place where the shadows talk back. Welcome to Hawaii's most haunted. This is what I've been doing the last few nights, just in the tradition since we're now wrapping up Halloween. I kind of got in a spooky mood. Uh, actually saw it advertised actually to me somewhere. KHON2, which is a big local news station here in Hawaii, had been sharing stories shared by Lopaka every couple days throughout October is just like getting the mood. And a lot of these stories are really interesting because he has a lot of stories about ancient Hawaiian culture and Hawaiian deities and spirits and everything. But then he also has all these personal stories and more modern stories of hauntings around the islands. He had a haunting that he claims happened to him as a child. He was seven or eight years old. He was in a children's hospital. There was a boy. uh, They were sharing a room together and they played together. And he remembers one day that the doctor pulled the curtain to separate their beds and he could only see their shadows. He saw the lump of the boy laying in the bed. And he saw the parents talking and a doctor talking and he only heard their whispers, but he could tell that the parents were upset and like hugging each other. And the doctor ushered them out of the room 
and again, the curtain was drawn, so you only saw the shadow. You saw the boy stand up and start asking him, hey, do you want to leave the hospital? Go play. Oh, yeah, nope. He was about to go play <laughs> with the boy, and his grandmother, who was in the room with him, again, part of this master storytelling family line, said, boy, you better put your ass back in your bed, because yeah. if you follow that boy, <laughs> you're going to basically get spirited away. He's dead. He just died. Ooh. And he was like, whatever, grandma. And she made him stay in the bed. <laughs> Turns out, when they came back in, the boy was dead in the bed, and Ooh, he was boy. claiming this kid was asking him to go play with him, to leave the hospital with him. So he shared another story I read that was really funny about there was this woman kind of out the countryside, I think, when she mysteriously passed away. His uncle apparently grave robbed her, and then her spirit came and basically terrorized him <laughs> at night and like sat on his chest oh, wow. and like told him, you fucked up, basically, and they made him return her belongings to the family and apologize profusely. Oof. And the ghost appeared apparently one more time to him and said, I'm glad you did that because you wouldn't have lived through tonight if you had kept my jewels or something like that. Whoa. So just a lot of local stories like that. But then it's also a lot of Hawaiian legend. He talks a bit about like the night marchers, which is possibly the most well-known Hawaiian supernatural thing. The thing about the night marchers is they actually historically existed. They were these warriors that would do processions around the uh, island. They would do everything from check on fields to check the borders of each tribe and they would go around the island with torches with a certain type of shell that they would use as almost like a drum a shell you can find on a beach i forget the name maybe a conch shell and you could hear their sound as they were approaching and the legend was you were absolutely under no circumstances to interfere with their march and then the belief was that when they passed away they continued their march and continued their watch and death and not just lopaka I've lived in Hawaii now for over two years. And again, I'm in Oahu. I'm in the most Americanized island, I guess you could say. A lot of people, not even just local Hawaiians, a lot of people swear the night marchers are real and are a thing. A lot of reports of torches in the middle of the night in places where like no one can actually camp or even reach in the mountains. A hmm. lot of people claiming they hear the shells. Sort of oddly similar to like skinwalkers mm-hmm. and the Native American tribes saying that when you hear a skinwalker approach, you can hear the native drum beats. So it's interesting to also hear like how lore and stories like this have similarities across cultures that are mm-hmm. completely different parts of the world and how they formed that way. I went to this deep dive where I was just like, is this a thing of the collective unconscious where like yeah. universally we all share similar ideas and tropes, but we just change it a little bit towards our culture in our area or is there something actually there like why there's so many similarities between like so many supernatural tales throughout history not only is it a great spooky story session it's a great look into hawaiian culture hawaiian history anyone who has studied american history and the acquisition of hawaii uh United States fucked over Hawaii pretty Ooh, yeah. bad. So like yeah. I'm the whitest white boy, so even I feel a little uncomfortable like trying to talk too much about this stuff. That's why I think we're kind of honored and lucky to have someone like Lopaka who is openly sharing it on YouTube, on Ghost Tours. So please give it a go. Even if you're not necessarily interested in necessarily the historical significance, there are some legitimately like interesting, scary stories. Again, I've been going down the rabbit hole and it's great because each of his videos are pretty short uh they're almost podcast like you don't even need to be watching it you can have it on the background and he's a good storyteller he's literally an official recognized by the government master storyteller so of course so i'm going to shout out his youtube page his youtube page is literally called mysteries of hawaii when you go to his youtube page under his about him and his description he has a few links 
There's the Mysteries Hawaii website, which brings you to his ghost tour information, some ghost stories he shares on theirs, Hawaii's most haunted areas, etc. He also has a blog called Ghosts Next Door, um, which also, it seems like he he still updates regularly. The last post of the time this recording was yesterday, October 28th. Right now, he's doing 100 ghost stories counting down to Halloween 2023, and he's on 98 right now. Fun. Through his storytelling and his shows, he does something called Chicken Skin Hawaiian Legends and Ghost Stories. He's always used the term chicken skin. And apparently chicken skin, (laughs) I think, is the idea of basically a chill going down your spine. Goose pimples. Goose pimples. Goose bumps. Yeah, I can't recommend this stuff enough. Check out the YouTube. Check out his blog. Check out Mysteries of Hawaii, his website. Not only is he sharing these stories, there's so much content that he's put out. Oh, yeah. It's kind of insane, like, how many stories he's shared. That sounds amazing. I'm excited. Yeah, even if you don't believe in ghosts, they're still good stories. They're still creepy. So that's my first recommendation. Second recommendation, and I bring it up every single time there's a new season. The fifth season wrapped up back in August, August 31st. Uh, I'm bringing up what we do in the shadows again. The oh, FFX show. So much. Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. Fantastic. Horror comedy show spinoff of the movie. What we do in the shadows about a group of vampire roommates. And uh, they just keep getting better, man. Like as the show goes on, <laughs> it's funnier. It's more interesting. I love how grotesquely like gory the show gets. <laughs> I'm not going to give away spoilers, but basically the overall conflict of season five is at the end of season four, Guillermo made a choice and now he is living a secret and he's trying to keep it a secret, but also figure out what the hell is actually happening to him mm-hmm. throughout the season. It is hilarious. There are great cameos, including one by Pat Oswalt later in the season. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Pat Oswalt is playing himself in the What We Do in the Shadows universe. Doug Jones, as the count, makes a couple appearances and is fucking hilarious, especially in the episode called The Roast. The roast is so fucking hilarious, and he is a big reason why. And I brought up what we do in the shadows every time a new season comes out. I always recommend it. It's so good. It's honestly like it's right next to Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's my yep. favorite comedy. It's a perfect it's- show. I think it's nearly perfect. Yeah. Can't beat it. It's hysterical. Yeah. This new season was only 10 episodes long. Episodes are 25 minutes, maybe. So easy to binge. They're all on Hulu right now. I love that FXX lets them kind of just do whatever the hell they want Mm -hmm. because fxx is not the actual tv channel for fx it's i think more their streaming service uh Mm -hmm. so they can get away with more gore they can get away with using fuck words like one of the funniest episodes i think i saw involves a panera bread and i'll leave it at that oh god (laughs) (laughs) sure (laughs) and again that's the episode with pat nozzle in it oh my god i gotta get caught up we're still like maybe two whole seasons behind it's just hard for us to like keep track of TV shows. Yeah, each new season gets better. It's so good. Hell yeah. All right, well, uh, I'll be fairly quick with mine because most of mine is just re-watching and stuff that other people have been talking about a lot on other shows lately, but uh, just catching up on some general fun old trash because it's that time of year. Heather and I rewatched, or I rewatched Heather watched for the first time, The Crow. Oh, hell yeah. People once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes, just sometimes, the crow could bring that soul back to put the wrong things right.
gasoline I smell? <laughs> Victims, aren't we all? And uh, she had never seen it. And you know what? Still fucking good. You know, it's one of those things where, like, for the longest time, there was a lot of, oh, only edgy assholes love the crow. And it's very <laughs> try hard. And every douchebag dresses up for the crow for Halloween every year. But honestly, especially in the wake of the MCU and all the comic book stuff we have, might be one of the better comic book to screen adaptations ever made. It's also wild looking back at that cast. Because aside from Brandon Lee, who is awesome, and obviously the movie is notorious because that's the one where he was accidentally killed during the production, but you've also got Ernie Hudson, Tony Todd, Michael Wincott, John Polito. Like, there's just so many character actors in it. It's fun. For a long time, for some reason, I'd always thought he actually made it to. City of Angels, but I forgot he was actually killed during you nope. know, The Crow, not City of Angels. Which is part of the reason why the rest of that series falls apart, because each movie, it's a new person yeah. that becomes The Crow or yeah. whatever. Because I remember you bringing up a long time ago City of Angels. Which is bonkers. Yeah, I remember you saying the guy who plays The Crow in that does like this Joker, we live in a society type of performance. But what about Brandon Lee's performance? Because it's been a long time. There since is I've some of this. that in Brandon Lee's performance, but he's just actually charming when he yeah. is, you know, a little bit goofy and theatrical and jokey with the people that he's going after. I can't think of the actor's name from the second movie, but he very much felt like I'm playing Dime Store Joker to a degree. But the first movie is fun because every character actor is pitched at 11. You know, Ernie Hudson is like literally like they're making jokes about how he smokes in every scene and needs a cigarette in every scene. <laughs> Michael Wincott is the most over the top ridiculous villain. And it was kind of hilarious because I was like, Heather, do you know who this guy is? She was like, wait, what? And told her it's the director from Nope from last year. And she's like, wait, shit. Yeah, that is him. Okay. You know, just totally different kind of. Oh, wow. I didn't know he was in that. Yeah, yeah. Wincott's great. He's been in a ton of stuff over the years, but The Crow and Nope. Polar opposite ends of what is this? Yeah. So yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun to check. And I haven't watched it in years. I also checked out the new VHS movie on Shutter VHS 85. What is that handsome dude? Is that on? <laughs> There's the lady of the hour. Why don't you just tell us where you got these videotapes from? Tell us what they are. You should just watch them. Oh, how was that? I haven't seen it yet. It's fine. It's just like any of the VHS movies. There's always going to be one or two standout segments. Mm -hmm. The rest you don't necessarily care about, yeah. you know, but it's at least fun to see what they're trying with the format. It's always fun to see different directors and what they bring out. This one specifically, 
the entire kind of wraparound framework story, which normally in these movies I don't like. The wraparound stuff just never really works to me. The whole, oh, we found all these VHS tapes, let's see what's on. I'm like, that never quite works for me, but this doesn't do that trope, right? That is directed by David Bruckner, who did The Ritual, which we've covered on the show. Yeah. He did the remake of Hellraiser that just came out last year. I loved that remake, yeah. His was fun because it was like this weird sci-fi channel documentary from the 90s about this team of scientists that has something that they're watching and observing and studying. And it just kind of keeps cutting back to that little by little. Gigi Saul Guerrero does one that is set during the earthquake that happened in Mexico. Because I remember reading about this. Wasn't this actually an earthquake that happened in Mexico City in the 80s? That's what I'm saying. So the framework of this started as a real-life emergency traumatic event, massive loss of life. I normally like kind of push back on, okay, now we're going to like tell a goofy horror story Mm -hmm. in that, and something that's like a real travesty, you know? I think hers kind of goes to like an interesting enough place, but I still am not sure how I feel about, oh yeah. And then it cuts back to like real footage yeah. from the news at that time. It's like, oh my God, yeah, hundreds of people died wrong. during this. Mm-hmm. That's a little weird. Natasha Kermani's was fun. It was very much poking fun of the 90s idea of what is cyberspace, the internet, oh, hell yeah. next horizon. <laughs> does it go lawnmower, man? It kind of does, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, the best way, yes. but it starts off as like this performance <laughs> art thing that's like very serious, and it goes off the wall. Fuck, I might have to watch it just for that, because I love that aesthetic. <laughs> Mike P. Nelson does kind of like a part A, part B story where it picks up a little bit later. I'll be honest, his and then Scott Derrickson, you know, director of Doctor Strange and Sinister and a bunch of other stuff, um, which he's maybe like the biggest name that they've had in this VHS series so far. Both of theirs involved a lot of gun violence and not necessarily gun violence that is theatrical and over the top. I say theatrical, I mean, I literally mean like ballet, like John Wick, where Mm -hmm. none of this is real bullshit, right? Nobody actually does this. This is all, we're just trying to be as cool and edgy as possible and flipping shit around. It's it's a lot of like choreographed choreographed combat porn, right? Mm -hmm. This is actual really uncomfortable gun violence, like mass gun violence. Obviously, that's kind of the point. But both of these are like kind of tongue in cheek a little bit, which feels weird, too. So like that was one where I was like, I don't know that I'm really enjoying this that much because this is kind of making my skin crawl a tiny bit. I at least like the idea of the Scott Derrickson one, too, that there's these police investigators. They get called to a murder scene and then the detectives like, fuck me. All of this is in a VHS tape. That we were sent a week ago. When did this murder happen? Oh, this murder just happened two hours ago. The fuck? And then it becomes this whole series of we're receiving VHS tapes of these murders way before they happen. Who's making these tapes? Where are they coming from? Mm -hmm. And it becomes this weird thing from there. So I don't know, like any of them, I think how their budgets are utilized varies from short to short stylistically do they stay on point sometimes yes sometimes no as they kind of go along and obviously the stories like can or may not pull you in right but it's just like any of the other vhs ones watch it they're shorts 
if you don't like one, it's done in 10 minutes, mm-hmm. right? So <laughs> yeah. it's worth checking out. You know, they're all worth checking out. And I'll keep watching all the new ones that they put out. Just why not? I was curious about the Scott Derrickson one because I saw it was also written by Robert Carghill. Who it's his usual writing Sinister, part. Yeah. yeah. It's worth checking out. Just watch it. See what you think. But, uh, you know, I think out of all these, I liked the David Bruckner wraparound maybe the most because at least it also kind of goes to a goofy place. Other one I would like to highlight is on Hulu right now. This, again, has been talked about a lot of other places, so I'll keep it brief. But this is No One Will Save You. Directed by Brian Duffeld, who wrote Underwater, Spontaneous, and Love and Monsters. Stars Caitlin Deaver from Short Term 12 and Booksmart. This is an alien invasion abduction movie. Need more of these. Yeah, we need more of these horror movies. <laughs> the gimmick, though, is that there is basically no dialogue. There's no dialogue. Wow. It is a dialogue-free movie. Really? The entire thing is this girl in this small town kind of living in this rural house aliens show up and it kind of becomes this slight survival thing where she's having to fend off these traditional kind of gray Mm -hmm. aliens but it's fun to see how they're depicted this might be like the best depiction of that type of alien it's not as nightmarish and unknowable as something like fire in the sky Mm -hmm. and that depiction of traditional gray aliens this is definitely like a more tech forward kind of thing it's interesting to see physically how they move around and react to stuff but for the budget the special effects in this were actually really solid and it's interesting to kind of see where this goes and how this ties in with this girl and her journey really dug it it's a lot of fun it's the kind of thing that once you see it and you kind of get the gimmick of like okay there's no dialogue in this the visual storytelling is all you need cool it's awesome it's one that i would be curious to see it in a movie theater because i think there's a lot of really big cinematic quality to it Mm -hmm. but at the same time i could see people maybe getting a little bit pissed off going to see this and then being like there was no dialogue nobody talked in this movie what was this movie even about whatever that might be part of the reason why the studio chose to not put it out theatrically right if they could sit through a Papa Scorsese four-hour movie, they can sit through this one. It's only an hour and a half. The I people thought. that would go see this movie and complain about it are not sitting through Scorsese movies. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Last thing I'll bring up briefly is When Evil Lurks. Uh, I believe this was just added to Shutter in the last day or two. There's an invitation in the pueblo. You're scaring my family. I've seen my own eyes. I was with him. It's going to be an inferno. 
Tenemos que encontrar a la bestia. Antes de que nazcan más. Los tiempos de la fe se terminan rápido. This is the new movie from Demian Runia, who did Aterados, aka Terrified, from several years back. Terrified was kind of an anthology of different kind of fucked up spooky ghost story things. This is just a straightforward, gnarly-ass possession movie. Is this the one where the poster is in all red and you see that line of a woman holding an axe yep. towards yes. her head? Mm-hmm. Yes. I've been seeing this movie like pop up on a lot of people's stuff yeah. in the last few days. It went to some festivals in the last couple of months and made a big splash, and now it's on Shudder. In a nutshell, it's these brothers that hear gunshots in the night, they go to check it out, they find this guy dead with all these weird instruments and tools, they go check on this older lady that lives kind of off on the other side of the land, this is all like farmland, and she's like, oh yeah, uh, he was supposed to come and like exercise and kill my son, who is possessed and is rotting in the next room. And then they kind of peek in, and it's bloated, corpse, demon-filled. And they're like, okay, what the fuck do we do with this? And then it becomes this whole, like, okay, you can't kill this guy this way. You can't do this. We can't move him. There's, like, all these weird rules involved about not letting this evil out of him to spread and kind of go from place to place. But that's essentially kind of, of course, what happens is this evil, like, moving and jumping around and just kind of taking out this village of people. It's fucking gnarly. <laughs> Every line yeah. that you can cross, it kind of crosses. There's gross body horror stuff. There's kids being harmed. There's all kinds of just gnarly fucked up shit in this movie. But it it was different. It had some wild stuff in it that I've never seen before. And it's definitely that kind of weird, interesting concept. It's definitely like a Spanish thing. It's definitely a Catholic thing. But I love how they're like, Oh yeah, this guy's possessed, and just everybody in the town is like, oh yeah, we know all about possession and how that works and all the rules about this and what you can and can't do. We know all this. All of us are aware. It's like they go to the police station, they're like, Did you guys know about this? And they're like, I mean, yeah, but what it just don't do this, don't do that, don't do this thing. It's, it was kind of hilarious just how like everybody's fully aware of all this occult level shit. Like, it's no big deal. Like, oh, yeah, rotters. Those, you know, that happens every (laughs) once in a while. Just, you know, it's fine. We're hip to the rotters. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, in 80s horror, like Ghostbusters, how college campuses had a paranormal division Uh and then just made that into like part of this. Oh, this is just the town now. Yeah. But there's definitely some very interesting kind of lore that's being built up and developed in the thing. And again, if you just want something that's going to like, shock you a little bit okay here you go i was surprised that it again went where it did at certain points in time so it's worth checking out if you're into some extreme shit so this is again when evil lurks on shutter from what i understand of terrified because that's actually i put that on our list because i've looked up stuff about that movie i feel like it does the same thing where it goes places in some ways it did yes like as a whole i don't know that that movie did a whole lot for me on a smaller scale, there's stuff that I saw in that movie that like still sticks in my head. So I'm interested to revisit that one eventually. Yeah. 
But yeah, every, everybody's talking about this one when Evil Lurks right now because it just hit Shutter. It was just at festivals and kind of made a splash. So yeah, definitely worth checking out if you want something that's super uh, gnarly. What's the runtime on it? Oh, it's like 90 minutes. Perfect. Nine. Yeah, there exactly. Perfect. 90 minutes. Cool. <laughs> uh, that's fine with me. That's exactly as much demon possession as I can take. Precisely 90 <laughs> minutes yeah. in a mouth. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, let's go ahead and jump into our discussion of The House on Sorority Row from 1982, directed by Mark Rossman. This is going to be an interesting discussion because this was on our list. Yeah. Derek brought this up as a recommendation a, a year back. or so ago. It was a while back. Yeah. This is one that I've seen a few times years ago, but this was one that you requested, mm-hmm. Whitney, specifically. So yeah. let's give everybody like a quick preview, what we're getting into, and then we'll jump in. A certain kind of girl joins Pi Theta sorority. A girl who likes to party and likes to get close to her friends. A girl whose extracurricular activities were more daring than most. A girl who could turn her fantasies into reality. One more sling won't set us back, any. Then again, Pi Theta was different from other sororities. I'll get back at you the last thing I do! Because in this sorority, nothing is off limits. As long as it's fun for the girls. So when it came time to say goodbye... They decided to make real sure that no one would ever forget the girls in the House on Sorority Row. So cool, yeah, that is a little bit of taste of House on Sorority Row. I've already talked about it in a past episode. Aaron, you talked about it when I recommended it uh, on that episode. Whitney, this was your choice. So like, mm-hmm. actually, let's hear from you first. Why do you like it? Why was this your pick? Why did you want to discuss it? What about the House on Sorority Row draws you to it? Well, um, I went on a binge of scary kind of slasher movies from the late 70s to around the mid 80s, which I think was like a golden age, you know, of that genre of horror. They're kind of like my comfort watches, you know, as weird as that sounds. Ironically, (laughs) on and off, I've been doing the same thing. I've been purposely searching out underrated slash movies from the 70s and 80s which is how i found house on sorority road yeah exactly well last year i did thrillers and i got really into like de palma and like this one kind of fits it almost into that realm because it's not real gory you know it has its moments but it just felt different to me like i expected it when i heard the name especially house on sorority row i expected it to be a very stereotypical slasher and in some ways it is but in some very important ways it isn't and i just thought that was refreshing for one thing it's a very female movie and i can talk about this at probably annoying length but the men are almost incidental to the script in a way they're there but they're not like we can talk about what was his name peter the boyfriend or the blind date who shows up at the party like that dude is hilarious he's so ineffectual Such yeah. a doofus, bless his heart. Yeah. Like I said to my friend, like Peter thinks he's in movie A, which is like a rom com, and yeah. Peter's actually in movie C, where everybody's just being murdered around him, and he has no idea. He's just focused on the girl that he wants to 
end up with at the end of the night. <laughs> I called him the dumbstruck to lovable goo. Yeah. Like. When Peter showed up at the movie premiere, he was shocked to find out he was not the protagonist kind of thing. Like he just he's clueless the entire time. <laughs> yeah. So I love how You're right like, though. How many <laughs> slasher flicks pass the Bechtel test, you know? Like not many, but this one yeah. I was actually surprised when I found out that the writer director was a guy because I was like, this has got to be a female I did too. writer director, right? But no. And yet it's almost dare I say it, a feminist little movie in a lot of ways. It's really interesting. So that was one of the things that I liked about it. And I just love that early 80s aesthetic. Like, I love the clothes. I thought the colors and the lighting direction and everything was gorgeous in this movie. The sets were just beautiful. You know, and I'm a Gen Xer, so I grew up in the 80s. So it felt very familiar to me. And that was really lovely. And I don't know, it just... It felt like something different, even though, yes, it is a traditional slasher in a lot of ways as well. And there's goofy elements to it. Like, I saw Rift Tracks did this this one, which I think is hysterical. I saw that too. I was like, oh, I got to watch the Rift Tracks version. But they do good movies sometimes. On Tubi, they have both the Rift Tracks version and just this movie by itself for free. Because I watched it on Tubi this time around. But um, kind of going off to a lot of what you're saying, because, again, I brought this up several episodes ago i don't even remember when it was because i did the same thing i was looking up not even just lists going on horror reddit looking for Mm -hmm. deep cut slasher movies that are underrated i see a lot of them on twitter sometimes on horror twitter and watching them and some of them were duds Uh, a lot of them were like just very much just trying to obvious cash in on friday the 13th halloween which in some aspects yes house on sorority row is among that but the two that really stood out to me, well, three, actually, because uh, Alice Sweet Alice was another one, but that one's from like 76. Oh, that one's wild. Yeah. That one's wild, and we need to do that episode too, Aaron. But uh, Alice Sweet Alice stood out to me. But then the other two that you would think, based off just the title alone, were just yeah. the absolute most generic, trope-heavy, like here's a bunch of college or even high school girls getting nude, but they're yeah. played by adult actresses, I guess, so it's okay. <laughs> They're going to get nude. They're going to show their tits. Mm-hmm. They're going to get massacred. Everyone who sleeps around is going to get yep. taken out because of right. that. And then that's that. And the two movies were The House on Sorority Row and Slumber Party Massacre. I yeah. knew you were going to say Slumber Party Massacre, man. I just yeah. I knew it was coming. Yep. And Slumber Party Massacre also, too, is a surprisingly yeah. kind of feminist horror movie. Is. That one, I think, actually is written and directed, is. I think, by women. Yeah. Uh, but All yeah. three entries in that series are. Yeah. And I would put Slumber Party Massacre and House on Sorority Row as like a good double watch. For sure. I think yeah. I watched them a day apart. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Underrated slashers that are female forward. Mm-hmm. Here you go. And you look at that title, The House on Sorority Row. You're thinking like, oh, okay. It's just a bunch of sorority girls who are sleeping around getting axed off one by one. There's actually very little nudity. There's a little bit. You but see like, some titties. You're going to see some titties. Yeah, like maybe a butt shot. That's about it's it. It's tasteful. It's tasteful, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's very little nudity you would come to expect from a movie called House on Sword Hero. And very little gore, like I said. I mean, like there's one moment in particular where you're like, yeah, but it's it's not a particularly (laughs) gory movie. The setup as to why they're getting murdered doesn't actually feel me inspirited. It's actually an interesting, granted, it is a little Friday the 13th-ish, -hmm. but maybe like an inverse on that idea. But like, it is an interesting idea. I feel like, yes, it's easy to say this is a ripoff of Friday the 13th Halloween, but I would actually say there's more in common with the original Black Christmas mm-hmm. with the then yeah. than those yeah. other two with this movie. But yeah, I was floored by how like 
even the stuff that's generic because you have the moments where like okay one girl gets picked off at the bathrooms and it's that trope scene where like they go door to door Mm -hmm. and you're looking under to see the feet one girl goes into like a boil room basement and gets killed there one girl wanders into the attic one or two get killed in cars and at the graveyard like has those by numbers slasher things but it's just so well done and again you're right this movie not only just passes a Bechdel test, it passes it multiple yeah, times yeah. because there's so many like moments where it's just the sorority girls being like, we fucked up. How do right. we get out of this situation? Right. Exactly. And you're right. The men are either the problem mm-hmm. or in Peter's case, just ineffectual because like kind of bumbling around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the other guy who shows up kind of towards the end of the movie who you think is going to be helpful also turns out to be a jerk off in his own way. It makes it much worse. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is also an interesting instance again going back to black christmas where there is discussion of abortion there's Mm -hmm. maternity issues there's body autonomy issues brought up in this movie you know the doctor in this is sketchy as hell like there's all kinds of those real life fear kind of Mm -hmm. things in this movie as well I think what was eye-opening for me, and and this is stuff that I'll kind of get into in the production history a little bit, you know, I've seen this movie a few times. I've never really dug into the making of this movie or the -the behind-the-scenes shit. A, it's wild that there's a lot of crossover with other stuff we've talked about and covered, or things recently, like very recently we've talked about, but there's so much of this that now that I live in the D.C. area, I was like, holy shit. Okay, this movie was basically filmed an hour from where I live, and there's a lot of D.C. and Maryland-based stuff involved in this movie. And just on the surface, I would have sworn this was, you know, filmed in L.A., probably 15 minutes from the studio, and that's that, right? I had no clue that that was filmed on the East Coast, let alone D.C., Maryland, mm-hmm. right? So there's like some wild shit that I'll talk about there that was kind of interesting now that I'm up here and just reading about that. But I was very interested in the fact that this was one that you picked because this was on our list. And like I mentioned, Derek had brought it up before in our recommendation section. But being that you host a true crime podcast, Mm -hmm. I was kind of interested in, you know, what your take is on this, because immediately what comes to my mind when we're talking about the house on Sorority Row is... Edmund Kemper and the murders that he committed and all the women being like in a nursing school dorm. Oh, that's what you're thinking of Richard Speck who killed all the nurses. Speck. Yes, yes, yes. Not Kemper. Well, Kemper did kill a bunch of sorority girls and college girls, but yeah. Speck was the one that broke into the nursing school dorm and killed nine nursing students. Yes, that's who I was thinking Mm of. Horrible. But just that idea of Going to a place where you are supposed to feel safe. Absolutely. And you are vulnerable and you are surrounded by people, mm-hmm. you know, that should be able to help you and fend off something like that. And just how fucking terrifying it is when something happens. Right. Hell, you're at a party. They were at a party, with- absolutely. They had a band playing, for God's sake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If I only have one small gripe about this movie, it's just the party just kind of stops. I mean, there is some realism there, but like the party like is there and, and there's just not, not just <laughs> dozens. There's like a, over 100 people and then they're just not there anymore. <laughs> that was weird. But Peter's still around wandering the grounds like a weirdo. <laughs> but yeah, that was my only small gripe. But yeah, there's a party going around. So you have tons of eyewitnesses everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And correct me if I'm uh, mistaken. 
But was the first victim actually a guy? Yeah. The drunk guy who was wandering like yeah. to pee in the forest. Yeah. Talking to himself about the squirrels. Yep. Yes, talking about <laughs> yeah. the squirrels. He's the first guy to, to get killed, which was funny. But real quick for our horror newbies, I absolutely recommend this movie. It is a great, I will say, overlooked slasher. It does do that Friday the 13th thing. It doesn't do like full point of view, but you do only see sometimes like hands yeah. or the murder weapon yep. for a while until the revelation of who the killer is. There's not really jump scares, and if there are, they're very telegraphed. Like you said, Whitney, there's only like one instance of pretty good gore involving a bathroom and a toilet, and I'll leave it at that. Y'all both said that, but then I'm also thinking, mm, there's some very, uh, let's say, penetrating moments with a cane weapon. This yeah. is true. There is that one moment in the van at the cemetery, that is true. right? That was pretty vivid. Yeah. There's also a moment where they find another character's dead body that's pretty gnarly and it kind of cracks me up because i looked up that particular person on imdb and that's their like profile <laughs> picture <laughs> it would be mine too fantastic there is some gore in this and it's pretty shocking yeah. gore it's just not stuff that's like lingered upon right exactly. yeah it's well placed it's not worse than anything else but it doesn't linger on it yeah and it doesn't have like again we brought this up on silent night deadly night like silent night deadly night isn't as gory as you think it would be but there's something really fucking mean-spirited about that movie. There's an intensity mm-hmm. to it, yeah. Yeah, and this movie doesn't feel mean-spirited in that regard. So, like, the gore is almost, oh, well, if you're a watcher of slasher movies and horror movies, you could probably take the amount of gore that's in oh, this yeah. movie. It's not over, over the top. Otherwise, the creepiest moments are towards the end with, um, we won't go to spoilers just yet, but, like, there's a moment where a character is basically, like, tripping mm-hmm. and... The visions they have are ridiculous, but also kind of weird and creepy. Mm -hmm. And then the revelation of the killer themselves, like when she finally like sees the killer the first time. And then again in the attic, the final confrontation, like when the killer reveals himself is so good and so creepy. So those are like the most intense moments, I'd say. Otherwise, if you could handle like something like a Friday the 13th, you could definitely handle House of Sorority Row. But it is an interesting movie with a lot on spine. Also, the soundtrack is... Almost like it sounds like it should be the soundtrack to a uh, ghost movie. Mm-hmm. It's very like not what you would think would be for a movie called House on Sorority Road. Yeah, we'll talk about the score when we get to the production stuff and the party band. Oh my god, there's the like oh, yes. kind of goofy shit with them. Oh man, that fucking new wave of oh shit. Like, <laughs> but yeah. So there you go, horror movies. Even the generic moments are just handled so competently that I kind of forgive it for mm-hmm. being like tropey in certain yeah, parts it is pretty tropey but but again it, it does enough on its own that it kind of sucks that it's just lumped in with yeah. okay here's all the friday 13 clones yeah. now because it came out a yeah. year or two later and there's some sneaky stuff in there that i really wonder if it was on purpose or not like i said i was shocked right. to find out that a man wrote and directed this i would love to talk to that guy <laughs> sometime and ask him was some of this yeah. stuff on purpose that just really seemed like overtly feminist like when there's the scene during the party where these two dudes are trying to swing a girl into this nasty algae covered pool where of course the girls in the house don't want that for reasons i guess we'll get into later it would reveal something that they don't want revealed and they're like one two three they've got this girl and she's screaming and they go hauling ass down there to try to stop it and 
one of the girls just says, there's a wet t-shirt contest. And the guys <laughs> immediately drop this girl and just run what? back. I was like, oh, right. It's like yeah. worked immediately. Like was wet t-shirt contest, some kind of like 80s magic incantation for getting rid of douchebags or something. It was just so instantly <laughs> effective that I just belly laughed. It was so funny. Based off of 80s comedy, I would say yes. Probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like when you say to a Borg, you must comply, and it's just instant obedience. It was like that. That was really funny. I would bet a lot of this is actually based on things that Mark Rossman saw, witnessed, participated in, etc., because he's said, I started at UCLA, I was in a frat, right. Uh, right. like things didn't grow great for my academics, and I ended up leaving <laughs> there, and he finished college at NYU, mm-hmm. and then he like went back to Los Angeles, that's his hometown, and so going back and kind of catching up with people and like seeing the scene again brought up a lot of memories and stuff like that, and that's kind of what he wrote this script based on right. was just... His like memories of being in a frat and what all that was like. But it's interesting that, again, being a guy and being in a frat, he didn't just write this from a That's like frat right. standpoint. He wrote this from the female mm-hmm. viewpoint about women. The you know, the majority of the cast is female. There are no like lead male right. stars, except I guess maybe the doctor, mm-hmm. right? So it's interesting that he took that approach instead of writing more from what he knows, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like you said, there's too much specific idiosyncratic moments that makes me think this stuff probably actually happened. Like he probably saw a couple of idiots get what where with the wet t-shirt contest <laughs> line. Like I, I yeah. bet there's things like that that he probably either participated in or saw himself firsthand. Yeah. Well, again, mirroring what you said earlier, Whitney, like maybe he purposely made Peter like thinking he's the protagonist mm-hmm. when he's not. And like, yeah. that's supposed to be like his stand in. But if we want to go along that line of real life horrors and things that this movie has on its mind, you know, you could go the obvious route of a sorority fraternity. That's just a naturally scary place, especially for anyone who is not in a sorority right. or fraternity, but the idea of college life in general and in frats and sororities, how many times still to this day, are there stories where a tragedy happens because someone was drinking oh, too much yeah, uh-huh. and someone passes out at a, at a party and everyone's just like, oh, they'll sleep it off and they die from alcohol mm-hmm. poisoning or someone gets in a car, kills themselves and someone else like in drunk driving. Yeah. And not only that, but hazing, too. I mean, there have been you're talking about mm-hmm. my true crime yeah. background. There have been some huge cases in recent years of fraternity hazings that have gone terribly criminally wrong not necessarily just accidental all the time sometimes it just goes too far and it's you know people get a little bit of power and they take it too far and bad shit happens and so there's that as well i don't know if it was in florida but wasn't there a recent well recent the last decade or so a big frat in one of the florida colleges got shut down because someone died during Mm -hmm. hazing so like you have that i mean aaron in our own personal lives we weren't even a frat but uh we through house parties a lot and for a while my house that i shared with a couple other guys was one of the big house parties in the area and we were not equipped to handle right. it and we were just kind of fucking a little lucky mm-hmm. that nothing actually happened but there were times where people drank too much at our mm-hmm. house parties there was times where like we didn't know if someone was diabetic or not and they were right. drinking and they were starting to act like they're about yeah. to pass yeah. out and what do we do we're too scared to call cops because right. half of us are right. underage we don't want to like get kicked out of college and we make stupid decisions, which is we don't take them to the hospital or we don't call for help, but we got lucky. And I mean, that was just us. 
how many hundreds oh, of God times knows. that happens yeah. across America within yeah. colleges all over. And college pranks, too, getting out of hand. Exactly. Like, yeah, which is exactly what happens in, mm-hmm. in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Aaron, I don't think you were there for it, but my freshman year, one of our friends fucking busted his knee to the point where like he had to get stitches down to the bone and it was during a college prank where like they were taking us out to like this abandoned burned down hospital in the middle of like a forest and like i know about all this yeah it was you not know there, about this but i know about all this yeah it wasn't even one of us that was getting pranked on one of the people that like jumped out of the woods chasing us uh one of our friends he busted his knee on like a log chasing us and had to get stitches so even that shit happening and that's the whole i guess we get into it now like that's the whole setup yeah. of this is it's a prank gone way too far. Exactly. A prank out of revenge right. gone way too far. Yeah. And it's uh, one thing I like about it is that, you know, if you want to English major the movie a little bit is that there's this kind of mundane, like everyday evil that triggers that ignites this real evil. And I like that as a theme. Yeah. Because that happens yeah. all the time in, in true crime where this chain reaction of stuff will happen and something that was yeah. just a little bit evil will ignite something that's catastrophically evil. And frankly, it could have just stopped after the first initial incident. Mm-hmm. And then the girls having to deal with the consequences of that and things snowballing right. and getting worse and worse and worse. The movie could have spun out in that yeah. way. The fact that there is then, like you said, this extra layer on top mm-hmm. of that of we're going to take this even further to a more crazy degree is what's interesting about it because it goes a little bit beyond and frankly i'll mention the remake you know at the end of all this briefly but that's one of the things that the remake doesn't really quite have in the same way necessarily it is also very much a prank gone Mm -hmm. wrong and then following the consequences of that but where it ultimately goes is just not nearly as crazy as what this movie deals with (laughs) there's also too just that interesting angle and the director has said specifically that he envisioned and this is the quote the female characters would not just be victims the whole idea of it was that they were culpable right and that they were sort of bringing this on themselves end quote and it's interesting because it's not Like Derek said, the usual Friday the 13th, or like a lot of other slashers, oh, these kids are having sex. These kids are smoking marijuana. There's not a lot of that weird Reagan-era conservative bent Mm -hmm. to like, these kids transgressed, therefore they need to be punished. Right. So they're going to get meat hooked or whatever, right? One of them is having sex, but it's with her boyfriend. And then the only like thing you could say besides the prank going wrong and the all being culpable of that is that they just want to throw a party because they're graduating. Right. Yeah. But the prank is the real reason why they're being picked mm-hmm. off. Exactly. Yeah. It, it feels like more of a legitimate totally. reason because oh, they yeah. actually yeah. fucking do something yeah. that is bad yeah. empirically, right? Even the final girl, Katie, like who is the voice of reason? Even she goes along with it right. for too long than she should have. Absolutely. Yeah, she's like least culpable, which is yeah. why she ends up being the final girl, but she's not not yeah. at all culpable. And can we get to the spoiler or should I save it? No, go ahead. No, go ahead. We're far enough along at this point. Watch the movie. <laughs> it's interesting to me that you don't know for sure she survives at the end. And that had to be on purpose, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a moment where you think, okay, she's safe. And then those eyes open and he's still alive. And, you know. Yeah. 
We don't know if she lives or not. It could go either way. And I don't know if that was like done, oh, we're going to try and turn this into a franchise, or if that was done because, hey, none of them are actually safe still. Exactly. And none of them are actually yeah. innocent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll mention that with the production stuff, because there is some stuff with the ending specifically and kind of yeah. how it ended up there. And what's also interesting is the most, I guess, typical horror character, Vicky. Yeah. Played by Eileen Davidson. She's such an asshole. <laughs> she's such an asshole. She is the mean girl yeah. in this movie. But even her character's interesting because she's a fucking dead eye with a gun. Yeah. And like loves shooting that gun. Yeah, Vicky's fucking scary. <laughs> yeah, like that's not a part of a character I would imagine would be part of her thing. I'd imagine her to be more of the typical like slasher right. villain. But like then, yeah, you're right. There's a degree to where she is also kind of a sociopath. Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah. And so that's another element to it because it's kind of this movie where like no one's really good mm-hmm. or evil. It's everyone is different shades of gray and they all kind of just. And that was the thing I thought the first go around when I watched this a year or two ago. Okay, this is just a series of bad ideas. Mm-hmm. And now they're like throwing the body into the pool and everything was such a terrible idea. That was like one of the things I don't like about this movie. But then rewatching it the second time, I was like thinking back to our college days, Aaron. Yeah, I can't say we wouldn't have gone through that series of like bad ideas too. Oh, we'll take care of this later. Like, yeah. let's well, store the body here in the pool for. A I second. mean, if you recall, just <laughs> as the killing happens and they've got this dead body on their hands, the friggin' band is pulling up in the background of the shot. Like, they don't have time to think it <laughs> yeah. through. It's like we got to get rid of this dead body immediately. Chuck it in the pool. Oh yeah. shit! Here comes Mansfield with the beer. <laughs> like that's what would have been an. Yeah, that's what criticism that I hear often about horror movies centered around young people making bad decisions is, oh god, these kids are so fucking dumb. Uh. But let's be real, kids are dumb. Yep. <laughs> we were yeah. all kids at one point. Kids are dumb. There's just like a lack of maturity. There's a lack of experience. There's a lack of critical thinking. There's all the panic mode of. Oh God, oh God, oh God, what do I do? Life is going to be ruined. Everybody's going to be mad at me. Everything's going to go wrong. Like you just have all that processing yeah. that's taking place and, you know, you don't always know what to do, but that's real. You know, it's a oh, very oh, like yeah. relatable thing. And especially too, for these girls in this sorority who all spent the first little scene of them hanging out, which that's always shit that I do kind of love at the beginning of these movies is seeing all these characters interacting and hanging out regular everyday kind of ways. It's always kind of fun to see how they bounce off of each other, but they're all sitting around drinking in one of their rooms and kind of going around saying what they're about to do next. So it is a little bit of that, you know, okay, this girl's going to law school, this girl's going to nursing school, this girl's doing whatever. So they have lives in front Mm -hmm. of them. They have aspirations. They have shit professionally lined up for themselves that this obviously will all derail if it comes out so there's immediately that part of it too that's influencing all of their decision making one of my favorite lines was wasn't it the girl making the joke while she's drinking about going to law school she says i hope it's the shortest three years of my life yeah (laughs) yes yeah yeah that's right (laughs) which my wife being an attorney and being around all of her other friends and us starting to date while she was yeah. in law school, trust me, that is all very much the sentiment. And uh, that level of drinking oh. and everything is just like, God, get me through this shit. Because <laughs> I, <you know, laughs> I would be ready to murder somebody if I was in law school. There is that immediate angle to this as well. That, And again, not necessarily affluenza, as that term was coined a few mm-hmm. years ago with a particular 
murder that resulted in, you know, somebody just kind of getting off scot-free, essentially. But it's the thing that you hear about all the fucking time, especially with sexual assault cases. Oh, we can't ruin we this can't poor ruin boy's his, life. His life. Right. What about her life? Oh, yeah. He's got so much stuff ahead mm-hmm. of him. He's going to call. He's going to whatever. Yeah. Drives me up a wall. Yeah. Oh, that's disgusting. Right. That kind of bullshit. And there's a little bit of that here, mm-hmm. too, where it's like, oh, we can't get in trouble right. because you're going to law school. You're going to nurse school. Like, we have all the stuff we have to worry about. So there's more driving their decision making than just. Oh, they're a bunch of ditzes. Oh, they're a bunch of teenagers. Oh, they're oh, a bunch yeah. of whatever. I don't think they're presented as ditzes at all. Yeah, I think exactly yeah. right. And that's such the normal trope with mm-hmm. these type of slasher yeah. movies: is they're all dumb, totally, they're all right. idiots, they're all airheads, they're all high, they're all yeah, whatever, yeah. and that's why they're making bad decisions. No, th- there's a lot of relatable, more true stuff totally, here. Totally, totally. In this movie, I would say the biggest thing is they're entitled. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of that entitlement. Yeah, I, there's I a think, lot of that. I mean, hey, like, I, no offense to any of our listeners who went through Greek life. One of my best friends, Sean, who's been on a couple episodes of our show was in Greek life through college, but there is that element of entitlement with mm-hmm. Greek life and how many of those sexual assault cases, especially when yeah. it's someone high up in a fraternity or like an athlete or something, tries to get swept under the rug, especially even by the university. Right. Not just society, but even uh, on that microcosm of the university, like this is the most important time we can't punish them now, they're almost at the finish line. And you're right, there is a bit of that. Yeah, and there's also such an absolute lack of respect for their house mother, who of course ends up being the, the first victim, victim yeah. who, you know, it's like she doesn't matter to them because she's old and stick in the mud and whatever. And actually, she has an incredibly good reason to need them out of that house, <laughs> you know, on time, yeah. instead of staying an extra weekend to throw a party. And it's for their own protection that she wants them out, you know. Yeah, I love that swerve because anyone who watches even movies but especially people watch horror and slasher you know like it's not going to be her yeah, by the you're, end you're even though the movie is like out. bending over backwards right. to, like set it up but the movie's almost trying too hard to set it up that like it's her mm-hmm. with the use of the cane and then that whole beginning scene where she sees the doctor and he's examining her brain yeah. and being like your mental state is deteriorating you could fly off Rainbow. the handle so there's all that but yeah you're right otherwise then the swerve is you find out no she has good reasons yeah she's trying to protect your dumb asses <laughs> by kicking you out yeah yeah like get the fuck out of the house yeah. yeah it's interesting too like in that sense there are red herrings for the red herrings in this yeah, yeah. because on one hand you have that prologue that kind of sets up some stuff and you kind of have an idea of what might be coming which you're not 100% sure but then there is the whole element of again the house mother is maybe like getting some onset early dementia nonsense mm-hmm. it's her there's also the whole idea of again Vicky being a fucking sociopath yeah. and like you know <laughs> waving a gun around and everything and like you're also like um she could be yeah, doing this sure. to like cover everything mm-hmm. up again Peter there's always Peter seems to be just like yeah Ooh, I don't just, know yeah. always wonder is he putting on dumb yeah when I watched it with my friend she thought it was gonna be Peter uh-huh just because he was so benign and it just seemed yeah it's definitely a red herring exactly because spoiler alert too in the remake that ends up being all there is to like the actual final killer is there's one douchey boyfriend that you think could be him the entire time but then of course it's like the unassuming (laughs) one there's a lot of that stuff where like it just doesn't cover its tracks well where i think this movie 
does in a more interesting mm-hmm. way. And then, of course, it actually goes to a more insane degree in terms of who the final killer ends up being. Which I appreciate. Sure. Yeah. Going back to that opening scene from like the 60s, it's ambiguous as to what happens because it starts off like, is this woman about to get like a bedside C-section? Right. And then it kind of ends like, was this an abortion or yeah, was this totally. a stillborn? Yeah. And then like it just kind of leaves it at mm-hmm. that, leaves that hanging through the whole movie and it really doesn't pay off until the very end which I actually appreciate it but like there is that whole element again going back to Aaron like how this movie kind of brings up like abortion and fertility issues and all of that as well and women are always worried about what we might birth Yeah, you hear pregnant folks talk about how they'll have nightmares about birthing like hideous little gremlins and fish and all kinds of shit it's like such a common (laughs) nightmare if you're pregnant so there's this collective fear, I think, of what you could birth, yeah. how hideous and monstrous could it be. Quick story aside to that case, I used to do full-time nursing. I did night shift, and of the entire nursing staff, it was like me and maybe three other male nurses. The rest were female. So every shift, it was maybe one or two of us guys, and then the rest were women. we just talk about random stuff. But one night, they were all talking about because one of them uh, was pregnant with her third child or something. And they wind up getting on this conversation, you know, like 2 a.m. conversation on a slow night of like, I'm always scared that when I give birth to my baby, I'm, of course, I'm going to love them. But what if they're ugly? <laughs> and I'm just like, <laughs> and I, I was oh like, God. that's something I never considered. Yeah, because at the time I was in like my early 20s and, you know, having kids wasn't in my brain at the time. And now that I have children of my own. I'm not going to say I've never had the thought cross my mind, but, yeah. you know, maybe my wife had it more often than I did. But uh, <laughs> but yes, you're right. There, that is an actual thing. Oh, yeah. That's kind of legitimate. Yeah. So we can kind of move into some production stuff and we can continue to talk through things from there. So I kind of already mentioned that the director, Rossman, wrote this after kind of going back to L.A., back to his old stomping grounds and kind of being back around his Greek life people again. The script was originally titled Seven Sisters. He's also stated that the Clouseau film Le Diaboliques was an Mm -hmm. inspiration because both feature murder victims that are, you know, hidden in pools. I can see that. Which seems to be a great place to hide a dead body is in a giant vat of clear see-through liquid. (laughs) Wait, you're talking the French movie from like the 40s or Mm -hmm. 50s, right? Yes. Really? As an inspiration then? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. He worked with Hitchcock, didn't he? Or he had, you can see heavy Hitchcock influence on this one, I think. There's a lot. Well, to go back to what you mentioned earlier, Whitney, Rossman and the cinematographer for this, Tim Sersted, this was his first film as well. They both previously worked with Brian De Palma. Oh, I'll be damned. So there's your Hitchcock connection right, right, right there, right? Because right? yeah. Brian De Palma's always accused of being like a Hitchcock hack. <laughs> but they worked on home movies, which is funny because of all the Brian De Palma stuff, home movies is as far away from horror thriller as you can get. But some critics kind of drew that connecting line between this movie's visual styling to De Palma. I can see that for sure, yeah. Yeah, and like Absolutely. you were saying, I mean, this movie looks good visually there's some interesting stuff happening with the camera work Mm -hmm. you know a lot of that style for a first time director especially back in the 80s like this this is a pretty impressive debut feature yeah it doesn't feel like a first time director's movie no it it definitely feels competent enough in that regard too especially the cinematography because you're right 
What really stood out to me were the shots, but uh, going back, like the attic, the set dressing for the attic was so well done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know why that stood out to me this time, but it really did. Well, I'll get to that in a second, too, because there's there's a fun reason why. So Rossman partnered with a friend of his who worked for a documentary group out of Washington, D.C. Nothing fucking really shoots around here, really. There's always stuff filming in D.C. There's always a lot of B-roll that happens in D.C., but it's a nightmare to film in the district and anywhere around here just because of the traffic, the security issues, just all that kind of stuff. So a lot of stuff shoots in Baltimore, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what ended up happening here. So VAE Productions is this documentary group, and they raised initially $125,000. That was enough for them to go ahead and start filming, which this is also something common that we've kind of seen throughout the course of us doing this show is a lot of times it's like, get us enough money that we can go ahead and start yep. and we'll f- find the rest from there. Right. <laughs> yep. So the girls were all cast out of New York and L.A. The house mother, played by Lois Kelso Hunt, she was actually a local theater actress here in D.C., She's only been in like two movies, right? Most of this cast has only been in two or three things, if anything else from this. She felt like a classic actress to me. Well, she kind of was. She is a theater actress. You know, she just didn't do movies. Necessarily. Well, I meant like old school movie star mm-hmm. is what I meant. Yeah, she has yeah. that look about her too. Yeah. Old Hollywood. Interestingly enough too, her entire performance in this movie is dubbed. What? And that's something really? that normally that stands out like a sore thumb. Yeah, I didn't. But it's really never not that. that noticeable at all wow. in this movie. Didn't notice it. Yeah. Yeah. Her performance was solid, but Rossman wanted her to have kind of more like of a gruff, rough, raspy voice. So her entire performance is dubbed, which is wild to me. Wow. Like I mentioned, most of this cast. Went on to never be in anything else ever again. Right. I want to say the girl with her head in the toilet is actually like a classical musician, I think, oh, when really? I like was looking yes. at the cast. Yeah. Kate McNeil that played Catherine, her and Harley Jane Kozak are really the ones that had a solid career after right. this. Kate McNeil's in, as far as other horror genres, so she's in Romero's Monkey Shines. She's also in Jean-Claude Van Damme's Sudden Death. Harley Jane Kozak that played Diane, this was her debut. She's in When Harry Met Sally. She's in Arachnophobia, which we're definitely eventually going to cover on the show because fuck spiders. <laughs> Necessary Roughness. And then recently she was on Righteous Gemstones. So like she's still acting. And then Michael Kuhn, weirdly enough, who plays Peter. This is his only acting role. But he is a producer. Oh, my God. And he produced... David Lynch's Wild at Heart. Shut up. Really? Red Rock West <laughs> and Being John Malkovich, oh. amongst a bunch of other stuff. So, like, he's yeah. got a wild career, considering, like, this was the only acting role he's ever had. <laughs> and I feel like Eileen Davidson, again, who played Vicky, was, I guess, arguably the most famous or successful of this cast. At the time, probably, yeah. She has been in a lot of TV stuff since, and she's been in a lot of soap stuff over the years. She's been portraying a character from, I think, Days of Our Lives. Yeah. She started in, like, 1993, but then she's also been on The Young and the Restless as a series regular. Her original run was 82 to 88, and then they brought her back in 1999, and she's still a series regular to this day as the one character named Ashley Abbott. 
Yeah. To give you an idea, Days of Our Lives, she was on 1157 episodes. So how many was she on for The Young and Restless? Because The Young and Restless, she's been on a lot more. 2,047 (laughs) episodes. Jesus. Wow. She has won two daytime Emmys. Yeah. One for Days of Our Lives and another for The Young and the Restless. So does she play a villain in the in those as well? The one she's known for in The Young and the Restless is called Ashley Abbott. And Ashley Abbott has her own Wikipedia page. Oh, so uh, yeah. I, I didn't get a chance to read through it and see like the character's history or anything, but I want to go through it and uh see what kind of character she is because it's kind of hilarious to me that she's the mean girl in this movie who also is kind of a sociopath with a gun. Yeah. Then goes on to be like a soaps actress. So filming for this movie took place in summer of 81 at the University of Maryland campus and in Pikesville, Maryland, which is, again, like an hour from me, which is kind of wild. I didn't realize like, oh, this was right up the road. So again, going back to our last episode where we discussed the Blair Witch Project, which was also filmed like 45 minutes from here. Yeah. Yeah. Just I had no idea that this was right over in Maryland. It does feel a little northeastern, I will say, like at least the the house itself. A little bit. Again, I could have sworn this would have just been L.A., you know? Like on a lot or something. Yeah. Yeah. The original plan was to shoot in D.C., like I mentioned, but part of it was just the logistics and the money involved with shooting in D.C., but the house that they filmed at in Pikesville was just too good of a deal to pass up because it was in foreclosure and it was empty. So it was like film ready to go, basically. Allegedly, too, when they got there to film, there were two squatters in the house. And (laughs) they were both hired as PAs. Oh, that's great. Oh, sure. (laughs) Why not? It's better than them both being like uh, weirdo murderers when they get there to film. (laughs) Talk about stuff that probably doesn't fly now on movie sets. Probably not. (laughs) Yeah, really. Well, same thing we talked about with Blair Witch. We're like... The crazy old lady that they interview at the beginning of that also just ended up working on the production as an art director with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that about Blair Witch. (laughs) So one fun, weird detail, again, going back to like the look and the feel of the attic. Vincent Perineo was the production and art designer for this movie. He is a like local Baltimore guy who did all of John Waters' movies. So like... Pink Flamingos, Desperate Living, Serial Mom, Crybaby, Hairspray, like all of those fucking movies. Same guy who did all the set dressing and art direction for those did this movie. So like doing the whole house up like a sorority dorm, the attic, like all that was his work. And he's also worked on like a lot of the David Simon shows because again, Baltimore. So like Homicide Life on the Streets, The Corner, The Wire. And then again, how many weird connections this movie has that I just had no idea about the previous stuff we've covered. He's also the like set designer for Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2, which we just talked about <laughs> last episode. So yeah, fun times. Oh man, that movie. But yeah, kind of like we've joked about before with other movies, with the, we have some money, let's start filming, we'll figure it out from there. Uh, funds ran out mm-hmm. midway through the shoot, so Rossman had to like run to his cousin and basically take out a $300,000 loan from his cousin to continue Jeez. filming and finish the movie. Or no no no, sorry. He like 150 the total budget was supposed to be about 300. Also too, this was a non-sag shoot. So cast and crew was all housed at a nearby B&B farm retreat kind of thing 
and it seems like they weren't necessarily super comfortable all being stuck together like that. So it's fun how maybe some of that actual real-life tension Mm -hmm. with all these actresses being cooped up together maybe bled over into their characters a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so that gets us into one weird side tangent, because I love having these weird side tangents every couple of episodes. So enter Film Ventures International. FVI is a production group that was most well-known for unsuccessfully being sued by Warner Brothers over the Italian exorcist ripoff Beyond the Door, and then later successfully being sued by Universal over their Jaws ripoff The Great White. So this was a production group that was based out of Atlanta, which, again, this was the 70s and 80s. This was not the last decade where all the Marvel movies are being shot in Atlanta. This was like a weird period of time for anything to be shot in Atlanta. FVI was created by Edward Montoro in 68 as kind of a production base for his adult film, Getting Into Heaven, uh, which ended up being kind of a moderate hit back when like softcore and porno movies were just a thing you would go see at the movie theater occasionally. But over the next several years, the company mostly imported a lot of Italian westerns and horror and exploitation stuff. So the one I just mentioned, Beyond the Door, was like this huge exorcist ripoff but was a big hit. The company also produced William Girdler's Jaws ripoff Grizzly, which was a massive hit that I've mentioned on the show before. There's just so much fucking weird things you hear about jokingly, but then they actually happen. Like this guy just attempted to keep all the profits from Grizzly. It was just like 39 million. Cool. This is all mine. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Literally had to be sued by the writers and the director before they paid out. They also produced The Dark, The Visitor, which is a bananas movie that I've brought up on here before. That's like a weird Atlanta exorcist, The Omen, wild weirdo ripoff. Pieces, which we've discussed on the show before, which is also bananas. Vigilante. They did House and Sorority Row in 83, Mortuary with Bill Paxton and The Power. But in 84, the company was circling the drain because the Great White lawsuit that happened Mm -hmm. tanked them entirely. And then the owner guy, Montoro, was going through a super messy divorce. And again, another wild instance of, oh, there's a lawsuit. We're bankrupt. (laughs) This divorce sucks. I'm just going to steal a million dollars from the company and disappear. Nobody really knows where he is. He's possibly in Mexico, but his whereabouts are totally unknown. So you're telling me there's an actual true crime attached to this. That's that's perfect. Exactly. That's why I kind (laughs) of went down the side tangent, because this is the kind of shit that you go into in your show all the time. I want to deep dive on that story for my show. (laughs) Yeah. That's crazy. I was listening to the episode about the PI who disappeared in Mexico. And then it turns out that one is bonkers. Rick post. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like there was all this other underlying shit going on. And it reminded me a lot of that, which is why I kind of went into this a little bit. So anyway, yeah, this company is the one that showed up after MGM was kind of interested in distributing this movie, but got cold feet. FBI showed up and was like, hey, how about we put out your movie? Here's another $125,000 for you to finish up post-production, and we'll put your movie out. So that's how they got roped into this. And I have heard from these other movies that I mentioned this group was involved with, 
all kinds of other shady stories of mm-hmm. the guy who was directing the visitor was like, what the fuck is this script? I'm going to rewrite this. And then a mob enforcer shows up at his door and is oh, like, what the hell? You're going to film the script the, the way hell? it was <laughs> like that kind of stuff. And it's like, wait, what? Oh my God. Another instance where like another one of the producers associated with this absconded with a lot of the money from the production as well, too. Wow. Wild shit. But anyway, yeah, the only two changes that happened as a result of FBI getting involved. One was they wanted the opening scene to be colorized. It Uh was initially just straight up black and white. And the director was like, eh, let's just tint it and call it a day, which is why it's blue. Yeah, it's blue. For some weird reason. And not like blue in like a dusky way, blue in like a, Mm -hmm. there's a filter on the camera for some reason (laughs) way. The other change was the ending. So like we mentioned, does Catherine live? Mm -hmm. Yes or no. Is the final killer alive? Yes or no. The original ending was the cops showing up. They find all the girls' bodies in the pool. Mm -hmm. And when they go to the one that's dressed like the jester and they pull that body out, it's Catherine in the jester costume. So originally it was going to end with her dead. Yeah definitively but fbi was like look that's too dark let's have there be like a little bit of resolution to the end you know we can't leave on a downer note like that so instead they just kind of do the generic slasher movie thing of oh the killer's not you know actually dead yet that's a shame yeah i mentioned the score so richard band wrote the score for this Son of albert band brother of charles band these are like the empire pictures dudes who did Laser Blast, Metal Storm, Mutant, Reanimator, Ghoulies, like I mentioned, I mm-hmm. coincidentally rewatched it, Dungeon Master, Troll, Terror Vision, From Beyond, The Eliminators, Prison, Puppet Master, Arena, The Call, like just all of that 80s VHS store trash yeah. that is kind of beloved. But Richard Band's score is surprisingly lush. Yeah, it's beautiful. In a very interesting way. He has been accused before of ripping off Bernard Herrmann a lot, because mm. if you listen to like the opening theme from Reanimator, it's exactly Psycho. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of similarities. Yeah, he definitely kind of pulls a lot of influences from like, like this score for House and Sorority Row reminds me a lot of Jerry Goldsmith. But I, I really like and appreciate a lot of Richard Band stuff, even if it can be kind of riffing on other composers. And that alone, I mean, that extra chunk of money from FVI that paid for the score that this movie has, I think also elevates this movie mm-hmm. beyond just being kind of trash status. Because yeah. a lot of slasher movies especially, and again, especially after the success of Halloween, where John Carpenter's score, which is now like famously one of the best horror scores ever, 
it's still pretty simplistic. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of slasher movies that have very lesser than composers just made some real quick and easy keyboard. Ding, 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 ding. That's the score here. Have fun. And Richard Band's bringing, like you said, the whole London (laughs) Philharmonic to this, which, you know, brings a lot more character and depth to the score. Well, I don't know if any of y'all are classical music nerds, but there's a part at the beginning where I thought it was the Moldau, Smetna. Because there's a part where it has to be either a quote or an homage to the Moldau. And that's beautiful stuff. I bet it is. I caught the same exact thing. I played in orchestra yeah. growing up. I played cello. So like that's the kind of stuff that I like pick up on every once in a while too. I didn't know that. I didn't know you played cello. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Again, being Richard Band, I wouldn't doubt that yeah. he probably did pull. I mean, it's, it's just exactly. That Smetna mm-hmm. is like just a fun little motif to throw yeah. in. Something else that I, I noticed about the score this time around, which I didn't catch the first time rather, especially kind of towards the end when the killer is kind of revealed. There are elements of that, and this kind of goes back to where it almost sounds like it should be in like a ghost movie, because I kind of, for some reason, thought of the changeling at certain points, this go around with the score, that part where the sound of like a child saying mommy Mm -hmm. was included. That was one of the few moments where I was just like, this feels like it was picked up right from Friday the 13th with uh, the score kind of doing something similar. Mommy, mommy, killer, mommy, like towards the end. Yeah. 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 But otherwise, it still worked. And the score does a good job, even though it is kind of maybe riffing off Friday the 13th. That one shot when you see the killer the first time leaning over the doctor's body and he looks up and it's still kind of blurried because she's still sort of high. But like you see enough of his face is fucked up and like childlike and like a big giant hulking guy. Kind of, in a, again, Jason Voorhees, but was the second Friday the 13th out by now, 1982? Yes, I believe. Yeah, part, part two, two came out in 81. Came out the next yeah, year, it was 81. like 81, yeah. Well, I almost saw it as a like a Michael Myers mask, because it kind of looked like that. Yeah. In that first second, you're like, is that a mask? Mm-hmm. And it's not, yeah, but it looked like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, it almost feels like a mix between what Jason actually looks like and like yeah. Michael Myers' mask itself. Right. Again, those are the moments where it does feel like okay this is a friday 13th clone they still felt creepy and 
that's the only scene you actually see the killer's face mm-hmm. too. Yeah, because next yeah. time you see him, he's got the clown mask on, right? And yeah, that that scene yeah. actually yeah. got me. Like the first time I saw it, I was just Ugh! it just gave me the Wiggins. Yeah, big Wiggins. Because you're not expecting no, him to be I was not expecting clown just she looks outfit. at it earlier and there's nobody in it. Yeah, and you just think it's a big doll. So yeah, you don't see it coming. And even when you, she looks at it earlier, it looks like somebody could be in it, but then she right. like investigates as like, oh, it's and a doll. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, so you never phew. think like. Thank God that's... It's the background. And then that first head rise, I was like, oh, shit. Like, you don't see that often in horror. You know what it reminded me of so much is that when A Stranger Calls Back movie, which is like one of my favorite horror flicks ever... It's that moment when the killer comes out of the wall and he's painted himself Mm -hmm. the same color as the wall. God, it's creepy as hell. I brought that up so many episodes ago, like as a recommendation. I'd seen the first movie. The first movie has like, of course, that classic first half, I guess. It's a long chunk of the beginning of the movie with the whole, the babysitters getting the creepy calls Mm -hmm. and it's just escalating and escalating. And then the whole like, it's coming from inside the house. And then the movie completely shifts gears and goes from there, right? But that's kind of where the first movie stops being interesting. Yeah, I like the second one better. The second movie, I like better Mm -hmm. too. And it's got a lot more going on narratively. But that's something that I saw as a kid that stuck in my brain and kind of fucked me up was, like you said, the guy coming out of the fucking wall. I saw that at some point passing, growing up. My mom was watching it because I distinctly remember that. And I never could remember what it was. It was just like stuck in the back of my brain. And then I rewatched that when Second Sight put out a Blu-ray of it a couple of years ago, and I was like, oh, shit. That's what the fuck That's this. That's this movie, right? yeah. And that's, again, some, like, wild, creepy, true crimey kind of shit, like you would talk about just somebody being in the yeah. house already, right? So, yeah, the, the clown suit in this movie is the last fucking thing that you expect. But that's also, like, another weird thing from childhood that, Derek, you know, you grew up in New Orleans, Seeing creepy Mardi Gras masks. Yeah, it's a Mardi Gras clown too. Yeah, kind yeah. of like it, it's more of a jester than than anything. Right. But yes, yeah, you're right. Clowns don't bother me. Clowns don't bother me. And part of that might be from Mardi Gras. But those Mardi Gras masks, for whatever reason, are creepy. Yeah, they yeah, are. there are. And there's something about seeing them constantly disembodied on a wall yeah. because they're wall decorations. There's lots yep. of people who like collect all these different styled and decorated ones and it's just creepy and again in new orleans you go kind of around the quarter there's all these shops and everything that just have shit loads of mardi gras masks and dolls and stuff and that's sinister in a way that's off-putting and weird there were lots of slashers where like somebody's dressed up like a clown Mm -hmm. and then like you said there's michael myers and there's that uncanny like white blankness to his face and jason eventually has the hockey mask right but there is something weird about the Mardi Gras jester mask that's really off-putting and weird. And going back to what y'all mentioned a second ago, I also appreciate that you never really fully see the killer's face. Yeah. Because yeah. that was always a shtick with Friday the 13th was you always see Jason in every movie and inevitably at the end of the movie, his mask gets mm-hmm. knocked off or destroyed somehow and you see his face. And it never quite holds up because it's always clearly just goofy rubber monster mask. Yeah. 
And it looks different in every single movie. Right. He never oh, looks yeah. the same consistently, right? <laughs> what is happening to you? What's what's happening? What happened since the yeah, last exactly. time I saw you? You got fucked up worse? I don't understand. Exactly. So I, I do appreciate that there is that weird ambiguity with what is this killer? What is going yeah. on here? Because we still don't know. No. You never really fully get the answers of what is wrong with this person? Mm-hmm. What happened? What is the situation with this whole scene at the beginning? Like, you don't really ever get the answers yeah. to that, which I still find to be intriguing because movies like this tend to over explain right yeah all of that by the end even the doctor was like oh he was the last one of his kind mm-hmm. right last experiment what does that mean yeah it's really- but what was the experiment it's yeah. very vague i'm guessing this is he was saying they i briefly talk about like fertility drugs yeah like yeah he was trying an experimental fertility treatment or something and yeah it went wrong and i guess it all made mutant children that are murderous yeah. and like, then you gotta wonder what is he the only one out there? Like, are there other folks? Uh-huh. Yeah, like, exactly. Because that's bad. Yeah. And of course, it's interesting because it creates this tension when the doctor shows up. It's like, oh, good. He's going to help. But no, he's not because he wants to conceal uh-huh. his little dirty secret. Back to yeah. like nobody being innocent in this movie at all. Except yeah. possibly Eric. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, he's got a brain abnormality. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't know any better. He watched right. his mom yeah. get killed mm-hmm. by these women. So, yeah, yeah. of course, he's going to be fucking livid and going on a monster killing spree. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the doctor, too, going back to, like, the idea that none of the men in this movie, they're either in on it, they're ineffectual, or they, like, have their own ulterior motives or whatever. The doctor is another example of, you should be able to trust your fucking doctor. Right. Of all people, right? Yeah. And yet, how often, again, going back to your true crime stuff, how many cases have y'all probably talked about where, like, a doctor does some fucked up so shit many. with his patients, right? That happens all the time. Yeah. And it's just, uh, you don't ever want to go to a fucking doctor. We had so many of those that several of our fans actually requested us to take a break because they didn't want to go to the doctor anymore. <laughs> like, you guys have to stop Ugh, covering Jesus. these killer doctors. You are freaking me out. Yeah. Once I get through, like, your most recent episode, I'm going to start going back and going further in your backlog. So I'm curious to see what you cover. Oh, we've had some scary ass doctors. Absolutely. Yeah, because like the only major medical like true crime that I can think of off the top of my head is the nurse uh, who was like uh, the angel of death nurse right. who would purposely like I think inject potassium into patients mm-hmm. to cause heart attacks because it was also at the time hard to tell that's yeah. what would happen because your body yeah. would eventually like process the potassium but it would basically kill your heart mm-hmm. so and that was a nurse so I'm curious to hear some of the true crime cases with doctors because that's oh, we've got we take your pick we've had tons and tons the one i would start with is anthony pignataro that one was wild anthony pignataro this was the guy who invented the snap-on toupee meaning you would drill actual snaps into your skull oh wow and he had one himself and he would go on talk shows and <gasps> take it off and show the bolts like frankenstein monster sticking oh. out of his head and he'd snap it audibly oh, snap man. Back on. but yeah he was just a incredibly irresponsible you know he wasn't a trained plastic surgeon but he was operating as one and he just butchered people and then he tried to kill his wife years later oh fun <laughs> bad news <laughs> so listeners go check out true crime yeah. campfire yeah it's great, absolutely it's a great podcast as a man who is balding slash is bald <laughs> this is why i made this decision years ago i'm not gonna be balding i'm just gonna bick it and That's call it a day <laughs> i'm just gonna be bald like i cannot imagine 
wanting to keep my hair so much that I would let somebody drill fucking rivets into my skull. I know, it was ghoulish looking too. To snap on an obviously fake piece of hair, just Jesus Yeah, not great. He thought that was going to be his road to riches, the snap on toupee. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Uh, So speaking of doctors, the band from the party (laughs) is called Four Out of Five Doctors. (laughs) Great name. Excellent. That was a one. Such an 80s time capsule. Like as soon as they start playing, even if I wasn't looking, I would know what time period this was just from the music. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. There's a very fun pop rocky kind of feel to their music that's totally of that era, totally fits in. Yeah, it felt very new wavy. But definitely is kind of goofy and fun. Yeah. They are out of DC. They released two EPs in the early 80s. Their music was also featured in Uli Lamel's movie The Boogeyman. Oh, holy shit. Which is a deeply fucked up, really transgressive slasher movie from around the same exact time period, but one that has a very interesting flow. Like, we talk about dream logic all the time. The Boogeyman has an extremely weird trance dream-like kind of logic to it, but it's very I'm looking them up right now. You're totally right. But their music was featured in that movie, too, and nothing else, right? They reunited in 2009 for the whammy awards which was at the state theater which cracked me the fuck up because when i saw that i was like wait click 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 on keyboard (laughs) oh that is this weird goofy theater that's like a mile from us that we always see doing like van halen (laughs) cover band Led Zeppelin, cover band. band. It's just like a lot of that kind of stuff where they just have those kinds of local dad bands show up to like play the greatest hits of George Michael, that kind of thing. So yeah, these guys were there to play their like massive sold out reunion show a mile from where I fucking live now. Just weird, insane, like, okay, this movie that I've seen before totally disconnected from me living in this area and now here i am talking about all it all roads lead to house at sorority row yeah, yeah. No. you want to talk about some hilarious late 70s early 80s shit according to one of the band members i'm reading this right off their wikipedia they apparently have toured with hollow oats richie blackmore and pat travers they've opened for the clash the cars which opening for the cars that makes sense yeah that yeah. seems like a dead giveaway with them sydney lopper steppenwolf jim carroll and they claim to have opened a few shows for Van Halen's 1981 Fair Warning tour. Oh, so like, sure. Sure. But yeah, that's great that they're four out of five doctors. Going back to the other doctor, though, real fast, the shithead doctor yep. in this. Another interesting thing, more context of this plot point, but like his plan involves drugging the final girl yep. and using her as the using bait for the bait. killer. Right, to mm-hmm. draw out the Interesting, killer. like, and she's a sorority sister. Again, real life horrors, like, oh, hate rape drugs, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. This guy just, without consent, just grabs her arm and mm-hmm. gives her a shot. Yeah. And it's like, you're my bait, we're gonna catch him. And you're thinking, like, what if he just talked to her and was like, hey, you be the bait, I'll wait for him. Maybe she would have agreed yeah. with him if he just fucking asked her. Yeah, he didn't bother like, him. And they could have planned it together. 
But instead, he was like, oh, no, you're part of the problem. None of this can get out or I'm going to be ruined. So my next yeah. question would be like, say his plan actually worked. What the fuck was he going to do with her? Peter, who had wandered in initially and the killer, was he going to like murder them or like, yes, I think because so. he says like this can't get out. Clean up after yeah, him. Yeah, I think that's exactly what he was going to do. Yeah. So again, yes, Eric is the killer in this movie, but like the real monsters are mm-hmm. everyone else. That's what's so interesting about mm-hmm. it, you know? The doctor and Vicky. I, I don't know how many of these slashers you watch, Whitney. I watched a lot that like people are claiming are underrated. And for the most part, all of them are my horror children. So they're all enjoyable, but only a few of them stood out. And this was one yeah, of them. Definitely. Yeah. The first watch. And the second watch was even better. Mm-hmm. I think this is actually, I would argue, is one of the most underrated slashers. Especially given yeah. when it came out, definitely agree. And I think even the Twisteroo, you know, we were talking about how you're gonna you're gonna see it coming, and I agree. But if you saw it in 1982, I don't know. You know what I mean? If yeah. you'd seen it then yeah. when it came out, I don't know if everybody would have realized the twist before the tropes were established. Yeah, exactly. Before yeah. the tropes were established, before we knew to look for twists everywhere. All honesty, like I think the first time I watched this, I knew it wasn't going to be the house mother. I knew that, yeah. but I didn't know it was necessarily going to be her son. Right. And I think the only reason why like there was some part of me I was like well it, something has to do with that opening scene so maybe it is mm-hmm. a child of some yeah. kind yeah. and that was the only reason I went along with it but I didn't necessarily like see the sun coming right yeah I remember when it hit me it was when she went up to the attic and saw that dead bird in the cage yeah the bloody that's bird. Like, mm-hmm. okay I see what's going on here yeah and again the red herrings that are kind of running around about who the killer is it's perfectly plausible the killer could have been Peter. Yeah, absolutely. And again, Peter might have been her son, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's all these weird totally. kind of what ifs that the movie does set up. And I think it actually executes on all of that really well, mm-hmm. considering. So yeah, ultimately, this movie got a limited release in November of 82 and expanded in January of 83, which is why like sometimes you see 82, 83 for the release date of this. But it's wild how much this movie truly was a word-of-mouth success. The first weekend that it went wide, it only grossed $618,000. But literally by the next weekend, it grossed $10 million. Whoa, that's a jump and a half. Uh Uh-huh. That's how much this was a huge word-of-mouth kind of thing. And it's wild that they didn't immediately jump on wanting to make a sequel. Mm -hmm. $10 in the scope of things. And it was number 15 when it debuted right but then it jumped to like being the number one movie in the country the next weekend it's wild to me that even with it making only 10 million which i say only that's 30 times its budget that they didn't immediately jump to making a sequel yeah that's exactly what was happening around this time so it's wild that this is just this standalone thing and then as far as you know this movie's legacy now as we're talking about this obviously this is a much more well-regarded movie. Yeah. You know, it's definitely on that list of underrated slasher movies. Tarantino loves this movie. He included it as part of his movie festival. This gets a lot of play at rep houses nowadays. In 2009, there was the Summit Entertainment remake when fucking everything was being remade during the 2000s. My hope is you girls prepare to go out into the world so that the things that you've learned here in Theta Pi will help you to do the right thing. We have a problem. What is it? Garrett cheated on me. You cheat on one Theta, you cheat on every Theta. That boy needs to be taught a lesson. <laughs> you all right? 
showtime. <laughs> What's going on, man? Are you okay? <laughs> oh my god. Ew. Guys, get whoa. Uh, she's convulsing. What did you do? Go get the car now. She's really dead. What? She really died. That's my fault. Hey, Garrett, we're gonna take care of this, okay? What's happening? I can't see. You're dead, dummy. It's a body. Do we wrap it in the blanket as is, or do we chop it into little pieces first? All right, everybody spread out and find sharp rocks to dismember the body with. How long are you gonna keep this going? What the hell did you do? She wasn't dead. Oh my god. Megan's dead, and we're all responsible. I don't see a way out of this. Maybe there is. I'm not gonna let this ruin our lives. If we all stick to the same story, no one will ever know. As happy as this day is, one of our sisters is still missing. To Megan, we love and miss you. Oh my God. It's a prank. It's the only explanation. Hello? I have one, guys. Megan came back from the dead. Now she wants to kill us. Megan? She was wearing a hooded gown. Half the Greek system is in hooded graduation gowns right now. It's not Megan. She is rotting in a mine shaft. Oh, we all deserve to die. Don't think I'm afraid of you. I run a house with 50 crazy people. It was directed by Stuart Hendler, who did Whisper and most recently the Max Steel movie. <laughs> but it was written by Peter Goldfinger and Josh Stolberg, who did the Piranha movies, 3D and 3DD, Jigsaw, Spiral, and Saw X. So there is definitely some like, oh, you see the rest of their filmography and you make sense like why these guys kind of jumped on to doing this House and Sorority Row remake. That was just called Sorority Row. Brianna Evigan's in it, Rumor Willis, Matt Lantner, Jamie Chung, and fucking Carrie Fisher no is way. the house mother. Okay. Well, that makes me want to watch it, if nothing else, because I love me some Miss Carrie Fisher. Oh, she's great. Yeah. And yeah. that's my Absolutely. heart right there. It's like a lifelong Star Wars boy <laughs> and somebody who just appreciates all of her writing work Absolutely. in general. It was fun seeing her in this because the initial prank ends up being like one of the other sorority sisters accidentally gets killed and they try to cover okay. it up not the house mother hmm. so carrie fisher's in the rest of the movie nice okay and she is fucking mean and snarky and no bullshit like her. and literally by the end it is her like racking a fucking shotgun and just blasting the kitchen apart it's great Ooh, okay you sold me. I'm going to watch the remake now. Yeah, it's dumb fun, but it definitely really, really heightens the entitlement angle. It really heightens the like sexual assault is rampant on college campuses angle. It really heightens a lot of that stuff. Right. So it does that aughts horror trope of edifying everything. Yeah. Like, because I am seeing the poster for Sword Row. It's in fucking that brown yellow that all those movies were in. Yeah. And like the 2000s that drives me up a wall, which even though I like Saw, Saw is kind of to blame for a lot of that aesthetic, yeah. I think. I felt like that way, even with the Texas Chainsaw remake from 2003, like just so brown and trying way too hard to be edgy and gory, but 
Oh, and the dialogue in this is 1000% some like, oh, we love Scream, we love Walker, let's rip off his stuff to the nth degree. It's that same snarky dialogue, it's the same like mean girl bitchiness, but super amped up. So it's at least funny from that camp standpoint, too, that all these girls are like ridiculously fucking mean to each other. (laughs) That part of it is at least fun in a a doofy way. And the kills in it, honestly, are pretty good. There's some gnarly shit in that one as well, too. There is a kill with a wine bottle. And that's all I will say. But it's the kind of thing that makes you immediately go, oh, shit. It's fun in like a very dumb way. I I will say it is probably one of the better 2000 remakes because it takes the premise and changes it enough that it feels completely different from the movie we've been talking about. There's completely different shit in it. And it's fun now, I guess, too, because it's such a weird fashion time capsule yeah which kind of like this, this movie is for the late right? 70s early yeah. 80s yeah it's very much the same thing but for like mid 2000s right? right you go back and you're like oh god we were all wearing clothes yeah. like these idiots <laughs> everybody's got old cell phones that you look back on now and you're like oh god <laughs> yeah. of course the only reason this movie goes to where it goes is because nobody had phones that have gps and maps and that kind of shit <laughs> yeah. i was like gonna say like oh it's only 2009 but then oh yeah 2009 is almost 14, 15 years away Uh now. So like, oh yeah. Yeah. Very different time. So anyway, yeah, it's fun enough. I would definitely recommend checking it out if you enjoyed this one. It is one of the better aughts horror remakes, but you definitely got to go into it knowing it is going to be way campier. It's going to be way more purposefully heightened and ridiculous. I love that stuff. So if you go into it expecting it to be like fun and not scary, it's great. It's perfect in that sense. Mm-hmm. Any final notes, Whitney? I know you took a few. It made me miss waterbeds. <laughs> <laughs> that was the catalyst for the whole thing. You know, it was when the house mother comes in and Vicky's in bed with her boyfriend. And by the way, I don't know if y'all noticed this, but there's a scene where Vicky takes a condom wrapper and with a great flourish, she opens it with her teeth and is getting ready to put the condom uh-huh. on. And I swear to God, I actually it is a took finger it's condom. a finger caught, right? It is. It is. It's gotta be. What the hell? And and you notice it's like that is the smallest condom I've ever seen. And this is where I'm like, yeah. some of that shit has to be on purpose, right? Because it absolutely was not a normal size condom. Yeah. I didn't want to bring that up because <laughs> I didn't want to get super blue. We don't know you that well. This is the first episode we've been on with you, but I was definitely like when I was watching it again, I was like it's a finger cock. That is the smallest rubber yeah. I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, that's got to be on purpose. It's got to be on that's purpose. That's got to be a Maybe complete know, purposeful joke. Yeah. yeah, He knows how to use it, baby, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Vicky seemed fine with it. So. She sure. She was very excited. She was ripping that condom open just with glee. Yeah. She was ready to get down. It's either that or it was, we got to have a condom to like promote safe sex right. or whatever. Shit, nobody has any condoms on set? Oh, well, we have the medical Diabetic kit. Let's get a, like you said, a finger cut out of it. Good enough. <laughs> right. Nobody will notice. Yeah. What was that line she like delivers like when she's like seductively like on the bed waiting for him like daddy just oh, purchased. Oh god, that was so gross. Yeah, she's like look what daddy was, bought his yeah, little girl uh, and it's a waterbed. Yeah, well, <laughs> and that, that was already kind of weird to hear like I guess in 1982, but now that the internet has ruined yep. daddy forever, yeah. like hearing it now is just like, oh Ugh. god, why'd you say that? Yeah, that was a full body cringe like, please no Vicky, please no. Yeah. And then of course the 80s movie thing where she's on top of him and she still has her shirt on <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is yeah. so weird because we just saw her boobs 
And then Miss Slater comes in and takes that cane and just slashes that waterbed. And that's the catalyst for the whole thing. Which, that was great. Speaking of that cane, love that cane. The cane was great, right? Yeah. What a good weapon, too. Mm -hmm. There's a fun callback to that cane in the remake, too. There's no attention drawn to it. It's just there. And if you know what you're looking for, it stands out. So that, that was a fun throwback to this one i'm glad we can drag you down to our level oh, Whitney, God, with please. you bringing up the, the finger condom <laughs> listen to more of our show you'll see you don't have to worry about it we're yeah. 12 year olds basically because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're right i missed that part the first time we watched it this time around it happened so fast i was just like that seemed small yeah. anyway i got a screen grab of it because i wanted to see like am i wrong or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i think i was more surprised the first time watching it i was just like oh a movie like a slasher of all things about to have a sex scene and promoting safe sex mm-hmm. that's interesting <laughs> i love that y'all noticed that too that really <laughs> we can be friends right? <laughs> look normally the joke is always the it's always sunny oops i dropped my monster condom for my magnum, magnum dong. dong like it's usually <laughs> that joke that the movie pulls where it's like oh really we need a giant magnum condom that's usually the joke it pulls not the like in all complete seriousness pulling out a mouse sized <laughs> condom that really did crack me up that scene felt like it could have been in slumber party massacre because slumber party massacre is very uh-huh. subtle with its humor yeah. that feels like a scene right out of that again going back to that pairing mm. of those movies again that fucking yep. scene in slumber party massacre with their fridge door and the body in the fridge yeah. door cracks me up so much i love that one too yeah. that's just what... look to the right well hell maybe we'll get you back on for that one because that's oh, one man, that like we to. also yeah. have on our list want yep. to do eventually yep. i think i watched them a day apart no joke like i watched them both within a couple of days of each other and they're both terrific oh uh, they're so good yeah have you seen the second movie no i haven't should i is it great oh god yes watch say the third not so much not so okay. much The second one is fucking ridiculous because it's an all-girl rock band. Oh, I love it already. But then there is this ghost revenant serial killer rock band murderer, but kind of like the first movie where the killer has the drill and it's very purposely phallic, Right. right? This guy's got... A fucking giant Death Lord guitar. Oh, please. That has like crazy giant spike on it. Wow. And so it's like taking that whole joke to an nth degree of ridiculousness. But the second one has like a lot of really cool stylistic weird heightened shit to it as well. And again, written by a woman, directed by a woman, has a lot of that viewpoint to it. It's not as poking fun at the genre as a whole as the first movie is where it's very clearly riffing on that this just kind of takes the idea but moves it to like a whole new level of craziness so i would definitely recommend check out the second one third at your own risk it's kind of generic but the second one is definitely worth checking out if you like the first one well shit now i have to decide whether i'm gonna watch the remake of sorority row tonight or that one so i'm gonna just have to flip a coin because i'm watching one of them look this is the 29th we got we got two, two more, more day. well, days of halloween left you know so. i'm i watch horror movies all year round so i i don't even need to worry about it hell yeah i'm obsessed October for me definitely is let's check out some new stuff, but let's mostly like rewatch the hits that we like. Let's give ourselves an excuse to revisit things that we know we like. Yeah. So yeah, I feel that totally. All right. Cool. Cool. Well, yeah, that's going to do it for this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by me, your movie monster boy, Sea Pig, Aaron, (laughs) and my cowardly co-host, Derek. 
Whitney, thank you so much. This was yeah, a lot of fun. You. Thank you. Thank you for your time. We appreciate you reaching out to us and coming on. It means a lot to us that you were like, yeah, cool. Let me go hang out with these weirdos that I don't know and talk about <laughs> horror movies. So we greatly appreciate your insights and your time. Especially with how much more professional your podcast is. <laughs> it yeah, was so too. much fun. I would totally come on again. So thank you for having me. So yeah, we mentioned True Crime Campfire. Yes. What else do you have that you're working on that you want to plug anything else that you have coming up Nothing i can talk about yet um we okay. have some fun stuff that might be in the works but it's pending we just did our halloween episode and i can kind of do a further plug for our friend nina jones whose podcast twisted mirror she was our guest the joke that y'all made earlier yeah. the entry level sodas that was nina <laughs> so um listen to that episode and by extension maybe go listen to her podcast it's fantastic it's horror fiction so if you're into Hell yeah. spooky stories it's good stuff also too you guys have a website mm -hmm. true crime campfire pod Dot com Again, truecrimecampfirepod.com. You'll have a Patreon and merch and all that stuff. You can find all that off your yeah, absolutely. website. Absolutely. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We, we're everywhere. We're in the laughter of the children and the breeze. And, the, you know, we're everywhere. <laughs> everywhere you want to be. <laughs> well, yeah. On that note, we are also on pretty much every podcatcher out there at this moment. Yep. Obviously, under Watch If You Dare on socials, Facebook and Twitter, we are Watch If You Dare as well. Please go to our Patreon and check that out. We do episodes kind of in between the main episodes just to kind of give you something to listen to every week. There we are covering TV stuff that is not in the format of the normal show. We are covering franchise deep dive stuff. We're doing lists. We're doing interview episodes so we're doing movie commentary tracks. So we're doing a lot of the extra stuff there. Yeah, we moved our commentary tracks from the main show to our Patreon, just so we can kind yep. of focus on continuing to just watch movies we want to cover. Uh, I know last uh, episode we talked about doing uh, Blair Witch Book of Shadows as a commentary, so we have to do that. That might be coming up, maybe. Yeah. We'll see. But yeah, the uh, Patreon is only five bucks a month. Definitely check it out. Again, the coffee that I drank at the beginning of this episode was fucking five dollars for a black coffee, so it's again, literally, less than a cup of a cup of coffee, coffee every week. So it's that thing. Yeah, it, keep, it helps us keep the lights on. It helps us keep chugging out content for everybody. And we eventually want to open up more tiers for people where they can contribute as well and have a hand in deciding what we cover um, and, you know, T-shirts and all the other stuff that people have asked for. So definitely, definitely check that out. We would appreciate it. Also, go to Bandcamp and check out my little brother's music, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Partygator. He provided the bumps the beginning and ends of all of our episodes oh, the music is so good that's great i love that that's your brother i was really enjoying the music at the beginning yeah his yeah, brother he's great his music is all pretty damn good but yeah check out opossums big clown party gator just all the other stuff that he's done throw him a couple of bucks and get some good music as always our spotify music playlist is still up so if you want some spooky tunes there you go some stuff that's been curated by largely Derek and I, but my wife also contributes to that as well. Keep Halloween going all year long with that. Yeah, hell yeah. So yeah, that is going to be it. Derek, have you seen Sally? Where's Sally? Do we know where Sally is? I've heard Sally's on a waterbed, a uh, <laughs> waterbed that daddy's little girl gave to her. Gross. <laughs> I was thinking in my head, like, how do we set this up? I'm going to leave this in, whatever, but I was just favorite line of the movie, and this is how we'll end it. How do we know she is alive? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> Best line reading fucking ever. <laughs> I forgot about that. Good night.